Generation Red Pill, a podcast hosted by ORP Productions, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories and get right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears. And I'm Christopher Dean. Together, we're going to take you on a mind-bending journey across another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing, Babylonian Money Magic, Financing the Cosmic Soul Trade. Is our financial system a monument to human ingenuity and shrewd fiscal policy, or has it been based on a more ancient economic system, one that traffics not in dollars, but actually traffics in souls? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Ladies, gentlemen, penny pinchers, and Ponzi scheme upstarts, everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories and get you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. Now, this episode is special because this marks the kickoff of the 2024 season. This is the first episode we're doing in 2024. If you thought 2023 was dope, Oh, you better buckle up for 2024 because we're shifting gears and coming in hot, starting with today's topic. Now, Christopher and I decided we're going to take a couple weeks off at the end of 2023. I went ahead. I kicked up my heels, got a couple cups of hot cocoa and did some light reading, you know, because that's how Negroes like to relax in the holiday season. But Christopher, (laughs) on the other hand, He decided it was prime time to go and do some intrinsic investigation. He found himself being a bit intrepidatious. He was out to discover what is going on in the financial sector. Now, I don't know if he went and burrowed in underneath the Federal Reserve. I don't know if he got in through a back door of the Treasury Department. I don't know if he was maybe standing over Klaus Schwab's shoulders at the World Economic Forum. You know, Christopher and Klaus do share some ancestry commonalities. So maybe he was able to slip in there and take a couple notes. All I know is a comeback from the offseason, and here he is dropping the dime on me saying, listen, we got some stuff we got to get into. The people's is hungry. They need to know about this Babylonian money magic. I'm like, Christopher, what you talking about, baby? We already covered that back in the Ultra series. Oh, no, 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 no. That was too long ago. They barely remember that. The Ultra lost the shine. We need to go and polish this bad boy back up one more time. So I said, cool. What you want to talk about? He said, listen, we need to get into the Federal Reserve. Got to talk about how it got its name and why the name itself is even a tactical form of deception that's based on word magic in order to deceive us. I said, whoa, buddy. Okay, what else you want to talk about? So we need to get into how the central banking have to do with inflation. Now, that one hits a little close to home. I said, "Okay, I'm interested in that. And then finally said, I think we should wrap this up by actually talking about does Satan actually trade in souls? And if so, is he the only one trading? I said, "Mm, I think, brother, we have the makings of a fine episode on our hands. And he looked at me deep into my soul and he said, you think? This is what I do. I put together dope episodes. I said, Christopher, you're right, but you're coming in a little too hot with the pride. I need you to pump the brakes and allow this episode to marinate a little bit. So we did that. It marinated. And I think 
ladies and gentlemen, we ready to go ahead and release it to you. But before we can do that, we have ourselves a process, not a ritual, but a process that we like to do around here at ORP. And that is you take your left hand, you smack it to your right hand, and you put what we call the esoteric signal out for Christopher Dean to come on to the show. You clap them together. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome my co-host, Mr. Christopher Adam Dean. How's it going, bro? Christopher, baby, what's happening, man? How you doing in 2024? Doing good. It's uh, it's a little chilly out here, you know, sneaking around trying to get all this info. <laughs> but uh, I hope you were bundled up while you were being <laughs> trepidatious, sir. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well dressed, well dressed. That's good. Safety first. And I must say, coming from you know German descent, it was helpful in my. Uh, my research and my travels. Oh, yes. Good, good. I was speculating on that point. I'm glad to know that, <laughs> that was an accurate speculation. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it, even more so, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but my grandmother's maiden name was Bachman. Okay. Which most, pe- most people think is German. I mean, Bachman, that's a strong German name. But actually, it's uh, of Hebrew roots. So now, okay, wait a minute. I'm confused. Which one are you? Are you German or are you Hebrew? That's the beauty of it. Uh, ain't, ain't nobody know, so I can I can fit in with whoever. No, I need no, to that fit sounds in. like classic spycraft. <laughs> That's what that sounds like to me. Hey, the the groundwork was laid before I even stuck my head out. So I'm you just know, saying. I, I don't know, Christopher. Uh, we're gonna have to maybe hire some independent researchers to go ahead and get the background <laughs> information on what's happening with you, so I can make sure the ORP has not been infiltrated by the Wunkenstein. For the, for those niggas who don't speak fluent German, and this includes Christopher, because as he told us in a prior episode, he failed out after the first week of German class. That that classic phrase there that was just uttered, and it was a one-time utterance, that just means, we shall see. <laughs> don't nobody fact check me on that. Just trust me on it. Okay? That's all it takes. Just trust. Christopher. Uh, okay. <laughs> Bro, let's go ahead and talk Babylonian money magic and how it finances the cosmic soul trade. live brother in a world that is bound by the financial systems of a single family you know it's a system derived to bind and enslave people not just in the physical but actually in the supernatural realm as well you know a system that has a 100 track record of believe it or not failure this is a system that creates an economy where it is more and more difficult to make ends meet and where rent and house prices continue to rise disproportionately to income. You know, I was just seeing a video on Instagram the other day that it compared Kevin from Home Alone, the groceries that he bought in 1991 or 94, whenever that came out, to groceries today, rising over 200%. You know, how do you navigate a system like that? In the last two years, those grocery prices have doubled for most people. And this financial system has been orchestrated by the hand of Lucifer and is thus considered a type of magic, specifically Babylonian money magic. 
So no longer being standard issue Christians, but actually training ourselves to be thinking believers, we got to ask the question, how do we begin to pull the shroud of control from this mechanism and pull it out of the shadows and into the light for all to see and understand? Got to ask, is it our responsibility to know the tactics of our enemy? And if so, then how should we respond in a world where economic slavery is very quickly becoming the only way to put bread on the table? What say ye? Man, coming out the gate with another banger of a question. That's uh, that's how we roll in twenty twenty four, baby. No, it's good. It's good. I think this is a difficult idea and concept to navigate, not just because of the complexity, but because of the emotional cost of realizing that the world doesn't function the way we've been taught. And when our livelihoods are dependent on understanding how money works in our economy, it can really be quite disheartening to realize that most of us are in reality and over our heads. You know, dude, that's a very astute observation because there really is not just an intellectual aspect to this whole topic of of money and finance and things like that. There's also a very visceral, emotional component to it. And many times I think that emotional component can almost block our ability to navigate intellectually this, this minefield of issues attached to finance. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I, I can really appreciate, um, people that have a struggle with this because I'm right mm -hmm. in that same camp. Yeah, me too. Me too. There's, there, there's so many times that I've tried to, well, I haven't tried, but you know, got into investing a little bit, starting a business, like all that stuff. And it's, it's one thing because you have to intellectually understand it. It's right. a whole other emotional minefield or, you know, hurdle to get over. It's, it, it really is two different things that you have to, na to navigate when it comes to, to dealing with finances and things like that. Right. Especially if you feel like you're already behind the eight ball. Mm -hmm. You know, if you feel like I've, I've made poor decisions or I don't really know, and somehow this reflects on who I am as a person and my character, it becomes this emotional snowball real fast. Yeah. That you have to work. You're like, what? What? You don't know about that? Um, no. I'm sorry. School did not teach me about credit default swaps. I, I, I put that on the list. I'm going to get to it. <laughs> you know, but I, they just didn't cover that. I'm sorry, baby. I'm sorry. I'll do better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it gets bad. Uh, but that being said, we are not financial advisors and we're not offering any direct financial advice. All we're trying to do is pull back the curtain and reveal the horrific truth about the economic state the world finds itself in and try to offer, you know, a little bit of biblical perspective on how we might begin to navigate the treacherous waters of the Babylonian money magic system. Now, dude, you're absolutely right. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the topic, what is Babylonian money magic? I'm glad you asked. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I try to be helpful. <laughs> Babylonian money magic is the Luciferian system of debt slavery. Okay. That by creating money out of debt, either by fractional reserve banking or fiat currency, then lending it back to a group or nation and leveraging interest so they cannot pay it back. It's a way of controlling people via perpetual monetary slavery. Oh, now you know that's a trigger word for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean perpetual or monetary. <laughs> I just want to clarify where, where exactly the trigger lied. 
I'm sorry I said the P word. You know, no, no, I wasn't it. I wasn't, it was the S word. That, that was the one that got me. Uh, yeah. And it, it's it's interesting because we've been talking a lot about that here recently. Mm-hmm. So to mm-hmm. have it come up in this context, I was like, man, like just filtering through that. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating to see how intentional of an effort there is about enslaving people. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the idea of, of quote unquote, racial enslavement. But it's Mm -hmm. something totally different to imagine a form of slavery that transcends even the racial divide and put that in quotations. To to get involved in a universal slavery system. Is really an uncomfortable idea. Especially if it follows the the uh, uh, is, is it Aldous Huxley? I believe this is the author. Wasn't he the one that did Brave New World? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If, if it follows the Aldous Huxleyan example of create a system where the enslaved love their servitude, that's the scary thing for me. Yeah. Right. I hadn't seen it from that perspective, but yeah, I think you're dead on. See, then we're talking about this thing, Babylonian money magic. I guarantee you, if any of the people out there listening are like me, they're like, Babylonian money, who? Like, mm-hmm. I, I've invested my money in a couple of days. I heard of Bitcoin, <laughs> but I ain't heard of no Babylon and no money, and my money ain't magical right now. The decimal and the zeros is going the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, this, this uh, I don't know if you remember, but this was one of the most difficult concepts to really try to to um to lay out because we brought it up first in our ultra series right this is like our our one of the first eight episodes we ever did on this podcast and the term Babylonian money magic got thrown around everywhere like you hear it you know on this podcast on that podcast it shows up in this article and that article and I'm sitting over here going but what is it right and everyone's like well it's Babylonian money magic but what is that? It's the system that we have. What makes it Babylonian money magic? And then they're like, because it's the system we have. Right. It's I like asking what a cheeseburger. I did. Yeah, you didn't have <laughs> much to. I'm bald now. Exactly my point. You didn't have much to go with at the point. And you was pulling out little nubs. He was like, I can't take it. And I remember trying to do research yeah. too. And I was like, uh, this is tautologist. For those who don't know, that's a $2,500 word for circular. And we're just going around <laughs> in circles trying to search this thing out. It was super frustrating. Yeah, yeah. But it feels it feels good after all this time to be able to have a definition like I just gave. Yeah. Because it's it took work. Kudos to you, sir. You dug that Thank out. Thank you. Thank you. But it's interesting because today we don't even hear that term Babylonian money magic all that often. And definitely not in mainstream media. I beg to differ, sir. I swear I heard Biden say it on one of his blah, 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 blah. And I was like, see, he's talking about it. That man's on to something. You know? He was, um, he America was is about Babylonian money magic. I was like, huh? The man is saying something that's, that's, that's interesting. I got it up. I was looking it's for like subtitles. A- <laughs> it's like a like a, a an audio version of a Rorschach test. Like you know what you I can mean? Just exactly. Hear whatever you want. <laughs> somebody hears Babylonian money magic. Somebody else hears like Milky Way candy bars. Like it's just whatever somebody you want else it hears. To be. America is. You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's whatever you need it to be. I was like, oh, hey, man. you know, the Bible said out of the mouth of babes. So who knows? Maybe the man is really on or something. I don't mean to offend uh, any of our possible Democratic listeners. It was just an easy joke. I had to take it. 
Or babies. Yes. Them too, because we probably have some of them listening. <laughs> I'm sure we do. I hope we do. But <laughs> on certain anyway. episodes, other ones, I'm like, mm, might not be good. <laughs> yeah, pick and choose. Pick exactly. and choose. But here, you take uh, a con. Yeah, instead of Babylonian money magic, the term that we hear in the mainstream media would be central banking. Okay. And central banking, uh, we, we wouldn't know it today, but it's actually been a contentious subject for almost all of American history. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So uh, Investopedia actually defines a central bank as such. It says a central bank is a financial institution given privileged control. I thought that was hysterical, by the way, that that's how they worded it. Given privileged control over the production and distribution of money and credit for a nation or a group of nations. In modern economics, the central bank is usually responsible for the formulation of monetary policy and the regulation of member banks. Central banks are inherently non-market-based or even anti-competitive institutions. Although some are nationalized, many central banks are not government agencies and are so often touted as being politically independent. However, even if a central bank is not legally owned by the government, its privileges are established and protected by law. So that's crazy because yeah. it means that the the a central bank has the protection of government, but neither the restrictions or the obligation of a government over the well-being of the people. Not that the government actually does that, but it, there's not even a facade of that. No, bro, I completely get it. In fact, it, um, it reminds me of this statement I heard somebody make one time, which is that the three most powerful men in the world are the president of the United States, the commander of a nuclear submarine, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I get the president one. And I even get the commander of a nuclear submarine. But why in the world would the chairman of the Federal Reserve be on that list? Like, yo, you got to explain that one. And it really only seems to click and make sense when you consider that the chairman of the Federal Reserve sits outside of the chain of command of government. Like he doesn't answer to anyone else. And I remember Alan Greenspan going on record and making a statement where he said, we don't report to anyone as it should be. This is his opinion, as it should be. I, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah. But recognize the fact that the chairman of the Federal Reserve does not report to the president of the United States. That's interesting. Zero congressional oversight. And Damn. it was designed that way. It reminds me of, um, what is it, Mayor Amshel Rothschild. Let me control the issuance of, of a nation's money and I care not who writes the laws or whatever that quote is. Exactly. Exactly. That, that brings it into much more clarity. Yeah, much sharper focus because mm -hmm. there's so much power that you wield at that point. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's not subjected to the laws of the land. I mean, you can play by those laws if you want mm -hmm. to, but you're not really obligated <laughs> to. Yeah. Man, that's interesting. Anyway, sorry, back on track. So the... <laughs> the, the <laughs> This is, it's, it's more than just contentious. I think it's a dangerous idea. And a brief look at American history can actually reveal the evil of this system and the ignorance about central banking that most of us function under today. Before I get into this, though, because I'm going to bring up some old people, right? Some old white guys. This is my bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, this, this is what I live for. 
I'm, I'm, I'm bringing them up in a specific way. Um, just analyzing their opinions on central banking. Like, for instance, I'm going to talk about Abraham Lincoln. I think he was honestly one of the worst presidents America has ever seen, but he was against central banking. So I just don't want to give the wrong idea that these guys are good guys just because they opposed central banking. That's, I got you. That's not it. That's, that's, I'm, I'm just bringing up in the context of finance, and, and that's all it is. Got you. So Thomas Jefferson said that if the American people ever allow private banks to control and issue their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people whom it properly belongs. Okay, hold on a second. This is fascinating. I know I was joking a moment okay. ago about the opinion of dead white people is what I live for. But this is actually <laughs> really interesting. Okay. okay. From a historical perspective, Thomas Jefferson is one of those names in the Negro community that you're, you don't really like to hear. Because mm -hmm. he, he right. owned slaves, right? And he was a, a rather vicious slave owner, from what I understand. Okay. Not, not very kind to the slaves that he owned. Thought very lowly of, of, of people of, uh, what do we say, melanin-rich acquisition. Those who had the true melanin. <laughs> and uh, okay. really treated them like crap, right? Mm -hmm. A person who looks at someone else that way it's interesting what they're afraid of. If you can look at okay. another human being and demean them to that degree, certain things just aren't going to bother you, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting that what he's afraid of is the possibility of a future where economic power is taken from the citizen. And this is a slave owner who doesn't mind taking power from others. <laughs> yeah. Right? It makes you wonder what amount of power did he see could be seized by the banker boys. Right. Cause I also thought it was interesting in his phrasing. It's the continent their fathers conquered. Yes. Right. Not, yes. not settled, not right. just snuck in. Right. Exactly. Not cohabitating conquered. Right. Exactly. And he's, a, he's afraid of central banks. Right. That's, that's crazy. You see what I'm saying? That is, mm -hmm. that is, that is mind blowing. It's like, what yeah. makes the devil shake in his boots? That, that's, <laughs> that's probably something that's you should be concerned way. about. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, we, we did in 1913 instituted the Fed, which is that central bank that he was concerned about. But there's been people all along the way pushing back against the idea of central banking. And few did as much to expose the Federal Reserve or central banking as chairman of the House Banking Committee, Louis T. McFadden. I haven't heard of him. I hadn't either, but he came up several times when looking at like who is actually opposed central banking. Mm -hmm. And he was like one of the top, you wow. know, like okay. his, his main point was against central banking. So in his congressional record, um, Lewis T. McFadden is noted as saying, Mr. Chairman, we have in this country one of the most corrupt institutions the world has ever known. I refer to the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks. The Federal Reserve Board, a government board, has cheated the government of the United States 
and the people of the United States out of enough money to pay the national debt. The depredations and the inquiries of the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks acting together have cost the country enough money to pay the national debt several times over. This evil institution has impoverished and ruined the people of the United States, has bankrupted itself, and has practically bankrupt our government. It has done this through the maladministration of that law by which the Federal Reserve Board and through the corrupt practices of the moneyed ventures who control it. Yo, he is spot on. He is. Do you happen to know when <laughs> this was done? Like when that quote was made? Um, I'm not 100% sure. I'm guessing it has to be at least past, it has to be post-1913. Since it's talking about the, the Federal Reserve, it would have already had to have been put in place. But yeah, that is such an interesting insight. And the scary thing is that it's still applicable today. <laughs> yeah, it's not any different. Right. It's not like they were like, ah, you know, he's right. Let's put in some corrective measures, some, you know, checks and balances. No pun intended. And let's go ahead and make sure if we can get this whole institution <laughs> running properly. Ah. You can levy the same series of accusations at this this system today and be 100% spot on. That's Absolutely. wild. But yeah, definitely going back before him, though, um, one of the presidents that I'd be tempted to like just because of how avidly he, he stood against the central bank was President Andrew Jackson. Okay. So he had the abolishment of central banking as his entire platform while running for president. Okay. And I think it's I think that's interesting because if a president today would make their entire focus of their campaign central banking, most people wouldn't know what he was talking about or she was talking about. Exactly. And that's that's scary to me. And even scarier is the fact that every single president that's been assassinated has opposed central banking. So wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me that every president that was assassinated, were they were killed because they opposed central banking? Uh, I'm, I'm saying that uh, that we can't rule that out as a possibility. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's interesting because you can't say that every president that opposed central banking got assassinated. I mean, that'd okay. be a little bit too clear. Okay. But all of them that got assassinated had at least this one thing in common, that they were avidly opposed to central banking. They were opposed to Babylonian money magic is what it was. That is fascinating. And even though, yeah, even though Andrew Jackson wasn't assassinated, they tried to, somebody tried to kill him. Okay. The slavery so thing I think wasn't it, part of the reason. I don't think so. I really, I really think it's all about money. It's not that that'd funny. be real hard to believe. Don't have a problem with slavery, people, but we do not want to be under debt slavery. Now that's just too much. <laughs> Get in there and make me a sandwich there, brother. I'm sure brother it's was not the, the word they used. <laughs> it is interesting. Yeah. But Richard Lawrence tried to shoot President Jackson in the back twice with two separate pistols, and they both misfired. He must have been running a Taurus or a High Point. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, Gaston Glock was not on the market at that point. You it know? reminded me that that scene from was it The Dark Knight when they try to kill um, Harvey? Yeah, in the courtroom. 
Yeah. And he just takes the gun and punches the guy in the face. He's like, next time, buy American or whatever. I was like, that's kind of funny. Yeah, Colt would have had that problem. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But Jackson had this to say about central banking. He said the bold effort of the present central bank had made to control the government are but the premonitions of the fate that await the American people should they be diluted into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. He also said, the bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he seemed to know it was coming after him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now now we go into the ones that, that didn't make it out alive, right? Abraham Lincoln. He borrowed money from Jewish financiers to fund the Civil War. But after the Civil War, he refused to grant the financiers the benefit of central banking and American money. Okay. So because of, well, we don't know. We, we don't want to draw any false conclusions. But for those of us that don't believe coincidence is a thing, this president that, that not just opposed, but prevented central banking from taking hold in America was killed by John Wilkes Booth, shot in the head at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Right? Most of us know that. Right. Then we have James A. Garfield. Garfield was shot twice at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station. Garfield is quoted as saying, coin of ascertained weight and fineness, duly stamped and authenticated by the government, is the only safe standard of money. And no form of credit currency is safe unless it be convertible into coin at the will of the holder. All right. I now that, that. that's. Yeah, but that's going to make some financiers, some central banking people not not so happy with him. So he didn't make it out alive. Ah, we had to take out Garfield. Yeah. William McKinley. He was shot twice at the Temple of Music in Buffalo, New York. Wait, wait. Okay, it shouldn't be funny, but I'm noticing a pattern. Yes. Two shot shots. twice. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, not one's not good enough. You need to make sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because Andrew Jackson's dude had two pistols. Right, right. I, I, I don't know if there's a message in there or something, but there is some consistency. Well, they say, you know, two as far as the number establishes a thing. Okay. That's interesting. It's also the number of division. <laughs> but, you know, pop, pop. <laughs> now, we really want to establish the fact that we want you gone. Yeah, that's crazy. But what, what did McKinley do? He instituted the Sherman Antitrust Act, and this was brought to bear against the Rothschild-funded J.P. Moreland financial empire known as Northern Trust. It was an, an act to restrict the functioning of Northern Trust in America, and he got shot twice. Wow. These banker dudes mm-hmm. don't play. They really don't. They really, really don't. And then maybe the the most contentious, most well-known is John F. Kennedy. So he was shot, you know, in the head by, I mean, there's so many different theories. The one guy in the gutter, eight men on the tops of buildings. Magneto spun the bullet around in his head trying to save him. Like, there's a bunch of different theories on how exactly it happened. Do what? He at least got shot twice. Okay, so he he fits the M.O. Well, you can see it on, on the film. At least he got shot in the neck region because he grabs for it. Okay. And then there's a shot where you see his head go back and, you know, the pink mist and it blew out the right. back of his head. So there's at least two shots. 
Yeah. Even though they like to claim the whole magic bullet thing, bullet spun and went and got him a second time. Right. And a lot of people, you know, we, we've brought him up before for being against, um, you know, like the Illuminati against the CIA, but he was also avidly against the Federal Reserve. Okay. And he signed uh, Executive Order 11110 which was designed to prevent the Fed from loaning money to the government at interest, essentially stopping the basic function of the Federal Reserve in America. And he signed that into office six months before he got shot. Fascinating. And he even began printing United States notes. Okay, so if no, anyone... no, no, wait a minute. There's a <laughs> lot going on there. There is, there is. So the guy first signs Executive Order 11110 which prevents the Federal Reserve from loaning money to the government at interest, which is kind of funny because that basically takes their power away, if I understand it correctly. It's not yes. that the Federal Reserve couldn't loan money. They couldn't loan money at interest. Correct. That's a key point, and that's their whole, from what I understand, their whole linchpin. Yes. This causes yes. the whole thing to fall apart. And then secondly, just to shoot them twice, if you will, <laughs> that was the first shot, pop. <laughs> Second uh -huh. shot is we're taking over banknotes. Yes. And we're no longer coming to you for the for the note that we're going to be yeah. that's going to be called money. I can see why they would be pissed. Oh yeah. And, and and for those that don't know or for anyone listening that hasn't paid enough attention, if you pull out uh any bill, $1, $5, 20, however high that your um your dollars go coming out of your pocket. Right. However large of a denomination that you got. Right. Hand. Right. <laughs> Look at the very top of it on the, on the front side. It, sh it will say federal reserve note, which means that it is owned by the federal reserve. What Kennedy did is he printed money that said United States notes that it was money of the United States, which is what we all think it is, but it's not. There, everything in circulation right now is a Federal Reserve note. So yeah, they were not happy about that. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the defining factors, and I, I believe I saw, I, I think at least in my head, whether it be um, the, uh, oh, what's it called? The effect where people remember things wrong. Mandela effect. Mandela effect. I thought that I saw a $5 bill when I was real young that had a red stamp. Because apparently the they, they went into circulation, but they, they were lucky enough, lucky enough to get them all back. But these bills actually went into circulation and r random people had them because most people don't pay attention to the, the letters at the top there. Okay. And one one of the things that marked a United States note versus a Federal Reserve note was that it, the, the stamp on the right-hand side, if you're looking at the front of it, was a red stamp. Interesting. And in my memory, I could have sworn that I had seen a dollar laying around with a red stamp on it. Man, so, I wish you did. <laughs> I wish it was true and that you had it. Yeah, that would be amazing if I still had it. I do wonder what it would be worth. Um, your life, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So, side tangent for a minute, since I've brought up both Lincoln and JFK, 
There's this interesting hundred year parallel that I actually got introduced to when I was in elementary school. Hundred hundred year parallel of what? Lincoln and Kennedy. Because Kennedy was almost exactly or exactly a hundred years after Abraham Lincoln. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's these parallels between Lincoln and Kennedy that are really, really bizarre. So there's this conspiracy that it's all orchestrated and all of that. And yeah, and believe it or not, public education, elementary school, the history teacher went through some of these and I was like, well, that's, that's strange. And then nothing else was said about it. And then God brought it back to my attention. He's like, hey, you mentioned Lincoln and Kennedy. Is there a connection? I was like, oh, there's this thing. And sure enough, I mean, there's a Wikipedia page about it. Like it's a, it's a pretty well-known thing, but I haven't thought about it really since elementary school. All right. Before we do that, can I jump back just to the last thing you were talking about with the $5 bill? Yeah, that's fine. I went to look it up. It's on eBay. Okay. There's a $5 United States banknote for sale. How much? $860 and $15 for shipping for a $5 United States banknote. And just like you said, it says United States note at the top. The serial number is in red and the, I want to say the Federal Reserve stamp, but that wouldn't make sense. So I'm not sure what the actual stamp is, but I see it over the, uh, the five. I think it's normally where there would be a green federal reserve stamp. Uh, This is a red stamp, but other than that, it pretty much looks identical to a federal reserve note. Yeah. If we could get enough people to, you know, contribute financially, we could get our hands on on said United States for research document (laughs) and archival purposes. Yes, yes. We'll even, you know what, if that happens, we'll even do a shirt that has a United States note, crystal clear, high def image on the front of it. Provided that the U.S. Treasury does not, or Secret Service, doesn't come our (laughs) way for counterfeiting claims. (laughs) That's fair. I'm too cute to go to jail, Christopher. I mean, you you can do it. Hey. I I can't go. (laughs) No, I'm I'm not really looking to go. Anyway. Anyway, back to this JFK Lincoln thing. Are you ready for this? Yeah, yeah. Hit me with it. So Lincoln and Kennedy each have seven letters in their name. Okay. So it's like, okay, okay. Both presidents were elected to Congress in 46. So Lincoln would have been 1846. Kennedy would have been 1946. Okay. And later, the presidents to the presidency in 60. So Abraham Lincoln became president in 1860. Kennedy In 1960. All right. Both assassins, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald, known by all three names, and they're composed of 15 letters each. They were also both killed after their assassination of the the prior president. Yeah, both of them were killed before they could be put on trial. Wow. Both of them. I just figured that one out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. (laughs) Both of them were Southerners. Okay. Both both of the president's successors were named Johnson and born in 08. One in 1808, the other in 1908. What? This one, I don't know who came up with this one, but this is phenomenal. Both had security agents named William, who each died within 48 hours of attaining the age of 75 years and five months. No way. Yep. 
it's it's so bizarre. Both married in their 30s to women who were in their 20s. All right. Both Lincoln and Kennedy were particularly concerned with civil rights and, and made their views strongly known. That's a little bit one that's weak. Both of them were opposed to central banking. Both of them were shot in the head. Both of them were shot on Friday. I mean, it's... It's really interesting that it all unfolds like that. You know what I'm saying? Dude, that's weird. It, it is weird. And I'm not even sure what to do with it. I don't but know, but that's too much <laughs> overlap and similarity to just dismiss it. Yes, I would agree. You got to take that to the throne room and be like, God, hello. Uh, what folder does this go in? <laughs> yeah. I, I need you no to tell doubt. me how to tag this. Yeah, because, I mean, it could be a coincidence. But it's it's kind of strange. And when you realize the level of control and methodical planning that these groups have, mm-hmm. and by, by these groups, we do mean, in fact, the different bloodline families and tears of the Illuminati, which is an institution devoted to enacting the will of Lucifer on our terrestrial plane of existence. Okay. So when you realize what they're really capable of, you go, uh, it doesn't sound that outlandish. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And the the bloodline responsible for the financial control of this Luciferian agenda is the Rothschild family. Most accounts hold that Mayor Amschel Rothschild began the banking dynasty um, in Europe. Okay. By enacting these central banking control measures. And now... I mean, almost the entire world. I think the last holdouts are North Korea and Iran are the only two countries <laughs> that aren't controlled by this type of banking established by the Rothschilds. Babylonian two, money. Magic. Two of the most stable governments on the planet. <laughs> it does make me wonder. Now, I'm not saying that, that North Korea is heaven for anybody, but it makes it makes you wonder what type of propaganda they play. You know what I mean? Because I think the one before these two was Cuba. Okay. And we had all these reasons why we couldn't trade with Cuba. You know, Cuban cigars were illegal. There's a trade embargo and all that. Well, as soon as they bought into central banking, we're ah, oh, we're all friends now. No, but that, see that that would make sense. Uh, okay. On two fronts. Uh, what what was it? We we did an episode. Uh, I think it was last month on the uh, Iron Mountain report from Iron Mountain. Yeah. 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 Basically the, the uh, agenda for enforced peace and really tackled the idea of the fact that the society, modern society is really a war based structure, war based organization that a lot of the things that push society forward are based on, on how do I, how do I say it? They're based on warfare, whether mm-hmm. it's military advancement or or uh, social oppression or, or things of that nature. And if that's the case, when you're dealing with these these countries that are holding out, one of the things that you pointed out is you said that embargo, sanctions, things of that nature are acts of war, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're actually talking about sanctions, but I think you could put embargoes in, the, in that same folder and be okay. Yeah, they're classified as acts of war because of the effect that they have on a culture and on an economy, right? Yes. Okay. With Cuba's under an embargo, that really means Cuba is at war. 
Now, is it at war with the United States since the United States placed it as under an embargo? You can make the argument for sure. But mm-hmm. if you're savvy, you're going to apply, you're going to take a couple pieces of information and put them together. One, you're going to realize that the United States is, for all intents and purposes, owned. Okay, that's okay. the first thing. The second thing you're going to look at is the fact that in modern times, it seems as though every major conflict has been financed by bankers. Mm-hmm. All wars are banker wars. There you go. So now you're going to ask the question then, being savvy, if Cuba is under a trade embargo and embargoes are act of war, who are they at war with? And it must be those who finance wars. Yeah. Which means they're at war with bankers. Which then okay. explains as soon as they agree or acquiesce to the banker's request to institute a central bank in their country, embargoes are lifted. Or other words, the war stops. That's fascinating. That's crazy, ain't it? It is. Man. So much to process <laughs> on this show, dude. It is. And even after all the research, like things like that, it you got to like your brain gets the bits of information and then like everything falls into place around it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but man. making those connections sometimes is, is difficult. Yeah, it is. Well, I think they do it on purpose. Exactly. So talking about making connections, if these people, these financiers, the Rothschilds want to institute this type of banking in a nation, how exactly does that work? That's, that's what I want to get into. Okay. And I think we can go back to Investopedia. Their their definition was um, startlingly accurate and transparent. What they I was, say? I was. They said that the critical feature of a central bank distinguishing it from other banks is its legal monopoly status, which gives it the privilege to issue banknotes and cash. I was like, No, they didn't. Right there, ladies and gentlemen. They just put it <laughs> flat there on the table. Uh huh. Legal monopoly status. Yep. You're not allowed to have a monopoly in the United <laughs> States. Everybody knows this. Well, you are if you're a central bank. Ain't that something? Yep. And it gives them the privilege to issue banknotes and cash through usury and interest, which is the interesting thing. So I think the, the best analogy for how this system works, we actually got from Dr. Laura Sanger. Right, the author of the book Roots of the Federal Reserve. Yes. Do you, do you remember how she broke it down? Uh, vaguely, I think she talked a bit about um, was it like a clown economy or this clown yeah. scheme? Yeah, there's like a uh, in my mind, it was like a clown at a birthday party, right? Okay. Doing these magic tricks because it's Babylonian money magic. So he <laughs> he offers to lend you a dollar, a special dollar, right? One that you can even put your face on it if you want. Okay. It's all yours to spend however you want. The only catch is you have to pay the clown back with interest. Okay. So in one year's time, yeah, in one year's time, you will owe the clown $1.50. Okay. Pay the clown back, pay him back 50 cents interest. It's a high number, but I'm just trying to make it easy with numbers. It's a huge interest rate, but all right. Well, well, yeah. Anyway, making it easy for numbers sake. I got you. The The only problem is, you were only given $1, so you don't have enough money to pay back the clown. So you show up, 
Even if you saved the money the whole time, right? You show up and you're like, look, I spent the dollar. And even if I didn't, the amount you gave me isn't enough to pay back the interest. All I have is a dollar. Clown's like, no worries, bro. I got you. I'll lend you another $2. That way you can pay me back. And then you still have 50 cents of your own to spend on whatever you want. What a great idea. What, what benevolent um, issuer of money. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to work. Except the problem still remains that in another year's time, you're going to owe the $2 back, but now with another dollar of interest. So when the clown comes to collect, you owe three whole dollars and all you have is 50 cents. The only way to continue to pay back the clown is to borrow more money, which incurs more interest and the cycle just keeps perpetuating itself further and further into debt. This is exactly how central banking works. Now, that's a, that's a really, really good example because it took me a minute to really understand why this whole debt thing was such a problem. Mm-hmm. Particularly the fact that we get our money from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Right? Basically, we order their banknotes and uh-huh. we use that as currency to buy things with. And, yes. and in turn, we're supposed to pay that back, which makes sense. But we have to pay right. it back with interest. Okay, that doesn't seem to be a problem. The only problem is when they print the banknotes that we ordered, they never print up the interest as well. They only Correct. print the order that we're borrowing. Mm-hmm. So in order to pay what we owe plus the interest we agreed to, we have to print more of their notes in order to pay that back. And that new printing carries new interest. So mm-hmm. it's a per- per- perpetuated cycle of it debtness of indebtedness which produces debt slavery yeah there's there's literally not a way to get out of it using not the system by, that yeah have. using the system there's right. no way to get out of it jfk mm-hmm. showed the way to get out oh yeah that's a good point <laughs> he did i mean <laughs> he is. just shut it down uh-huh we're not paying it it wasn't even so much we're not paying it you can't loan to us at interest anymore i thought you meant you know because he got shot that's the only way to get out. <laughs> what, why we all died? No. Yeah. No, like this is my mistake. I misunderstood. This is not financial advice. <laughs> Anyone that's listening. Exactly. <laughs> no, but the, the way he shut everything down. Right. It wasn't to do an audit. You know, it wasn't to, to put these other tools in place. It was flat out. We're stopping this right here. And it, it was it's amazing that it, it was a presidential decree. I'm curious, Christopher, since he signed an executive order and then was mm-hmm. assassinated six months later, he never repealed that order. Correct. As far as you're aware, is that order still active? As far as I could tell, and there is even two independent legal institutions to research that. And as far as anybody can tell, Order 11110, which restricts the Federal Reserve from lending money to the United States at interest, is still on the books and active. Which is wild, because you would have thought that that Johnson, his successor, LBJ, would have come in and just repealed it or, or rescinded. I don't know what the actual technical term is. But you I guess we rescinded it and just said, yeah, yeah I don't know why uh, we're not, we're not doing that. We're going a different direction. This is a different administration and I don't want to do that. It's an executive order. I'm the new executive. Right. They, I think it's crazy uh, yeah, it, that it's, it's still on the books and everybody's just like, what order? 
Yeah. Say it. <laughs> Say it. I dare you. <laughs> it is. It is kind of strange that they left it there. I don't know if they're intentionally like taunting or I don't know what it is, but they got jewels from uh, Pulp Fiction guarding it. You know, Samuel Jackson. <laughs> say, say, say executive order 1110 again. I dare you. I double dare you. <laughs> That's funny. What, what audit agency you from? <laughs> they speak Federal Reserve notes at that audit agency. <laughs> that ain't no agency I ever heard of. <laughs> right. They speak interest in there. Interest, mother. <laughs> Oh man, that's that's amazing. You could really take that whole quote and run that out. You could, yeah. What do the American people look like? Do they look like <laughs> fools? Well, they don't like to be screwed like no fools, Brad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, you're I'm not have to wrong. Let it go because I'm yeah. gonna keep messing with that quote. <laughs> that's hilarious. <clears throat> so yeah, the the way that it works specifically with the Federal Reserve is it's not just um, like you know they're not allowed to loan money to the government and interest, but they do it by purchasing government bonds. And a bond is a type of loan. Okay. And when you say this, so, all I see is Captain America. Yes. And, buy, and war bonds. bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I saw the same thing. And I really had to do research and I like, I got myself confused several times because they, tr- they use all this. It's not that it's necessarily complicated, but it's, they use, they have a whole different set of terms so it's intellectually cumbersome to have to, you know, re, to relearn or, or understand how they use these terms and all of that and to, to have it make sense. So I tried to try to break it down um, so I could understand it. Okay. The, the way that it works is if you purchase a bond from the government, you're loaning the government your money for the duration of the bond. Okay. And while they're using your money, they promise to pay you interest installments or coupons. Okay. So, for instance, if you um, if you buy a bond, it's a thousand dollar bond at five percent interest that pays out twice a year. It, it would look something like this: five percent interest on a thousand dollars is fifty bucks. Okay. And then fifty bucks divided up into two payments is twenty five dollars twice a year. Okay. So, j- just for the sake of an analogy, if it's a thirty year bond. And uh, you're lending the government a thousand of your dollars. You purchase, send them a thousand dollars. Then you get twenty five dollars every six months for thirty years, which ends up being fifteen hundred dollars. Then at the end of your bond, or when it reaches maturity, the government gives you your thousand dollars back. Ah, uh, okay. So that's how it works. It's considered very low risk investment uh, because the government promises. Right, as long as there's a government, they promise to give you money, but we we know what government promises are worth. So it's <laughs> it's good for the individual, you know, for the for the citizen. I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's catastrophic for the government when it's done by the Fed because the Fed does it with trillions of dollars. Mm. Okay. So every time that the government needs money to spend to send to, um. Ukraine or Israel or whatever, this money is not coming via taxation, like a lot of people think. Okay. That because of the mass amount of money that gov- the government is spending, and because they need these extra dollars in circulation, they need more money. They ask the Fed, or the Fed tells them they're going to buy so much money in government bonds. The government's like, great, now we have all this money. 
Now, we can send it to Ukraine and we can send it to these places. But in reality, it just puts the government further, further in debt to the Federal Reserve System. That's where this money comes from. The, the bailouts for COVID, right? Everybody mm-hmm. gets all this money. Anytime you see money spontaneously show up, it's because the Fed is purchasing bonds from the government, which means the government is going further in debt, which means whatever benefit this extra money might be in the immediate is costing everybody long term. I don't care, man. I got my stimulus check. I was going <laughs> to do some things with that. It's kind of funny because that's like the, the thought process. It is. You know, you it don't is, really but, care so much about the bonds. You don't care about the long-term interest impact. What you really care about is short-term. How does this benefit me? And we don't really say, I don't think most people realize what you just said. It's not just the, the same mechanism that gives us the stimulus package or the economic injection, as they like to say. Right? Mm-hmm. That same process is the same one that sends millions of dollars to foreign governments. Yes. You know, that same thing they like to call quantitative easing. We're mm-hmm. just going to put a few more dollars, print them up, put them in circulation. No, this will help ease the tension and things that are happening. No, this is the same one that, that indebts us and sends our national debt up into the trillions. And yeah. I think, again, you know, we've done this from time to time, just as a quick reminder for people that may have some trouble conceptualizing these terms. If we're talking about, you know, $100 bill here, thousands of dollars there, millions, billions and trillions. If you were to convert these into seconds and you were just dealing with a million seconds, that'd be the equivalent of 12 days. If you okay. were to deal with a billion seconds, which doesn't sound that much bigger than a million, but qual- qualitatively or not qualitatively, quantitatively, it is exponentially larger. And if you were to deal with just a billion seconds, you would be looking at 12 years. The comparative assessment from 1 million seconds to 1 billion seconds is equal from 12 days to 12 years. That's wild. Are you sure it's 12 years? Yeah. Is it 32 years? I thought it was 12 years. I think it's 32. I don't think the, the days and, and years you know what? convert. No, 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 no. It does. It does on, and on trillions. So you're right. It's 12 days at a million seconds. And then at 1 billion seconds, it's 32 years. Okay. But to go from a billion to a trillion is roughly 32,000 years. That's crazy. Yeah. Thanks for, for correcting that for me. Yeah, no problem. But it's nuts. The economies of scale. Uh-huh. And that's just at a trillion dollars. We are multiple, multi-trillions of dollars in yeah, well, debt. Was it at least 33, $33 trillion in debt? Something I thought like it was that? pushing up near $40 trillion. Oh, but is so, it now? So it's definitely I mean, that, at least got to be. We could go to <laughs> federal, what is it, uh, national debt, the debt clock. Okay. I used to have it on my phone. Yeah, it's it's crazy because there's it's not just the debt that we owe back, but every single dollar in circulation. So that's the what's called the M1 money supply. Every single dollar in circulation is borrowed by the Federal Reserve. Which means any dollar, every dollar that anybody has in their wallet and their bank account is actually due to be returned to the Federal Reserve at the maturity of the bonds. And right now the debt is still climbing. You were right. 
It, it's it's thirty three point nine trillion. Jeez. You can go to usdebtclock.org and you can see real time what the national debt is. And it's just, it almost looked like you're looking at a clock. How these numbers are just running. Like yeah, right now, I mean, it, I just watched $100,000 of debt be accrued. Wow. 800000 right now, 900000 I mean, the hundreds of thousands are running like seconds. Yeah. That's what's crazy. It's crazy, but it makes sense when you understand that every time the Fed buys a bond, the government is promising to pay, right, in coupons, which is constantly increasing the debt. I mean, always, since 1913, this has been going on. Exactly. So that's so that's how you can have every couple seconds another hundred thousand dollars in debt. Like and, it's wild, dude. Like just an amount of time we were talking, we just went up a million dollars in debt. It's yeah, it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around that much money, that much debt. Right. I'm watching the six figures and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. It just piped, it just went up. It, it is really, really difficult to do exactly what you're saying and wrap your mind around that. But it's it's so important because this is the system of control that that's being implemented. Yeah. And this is what this is why we will never. Pay back the national debt, we're never going to get out of debt as a nation, as long as we maintain central banking, as long as we adhere to a Babylonian money magic system, a fiat currency. We are never going to get out of debt. The system will not allow for it. It's just going to get larger and larger. Exactly. Exactly. You were saying a moment ago about M1 money supply. Yes. I've heard that term before. What is that again? I believe it is all of the money that is in circulation. Okay. So it'd be all the, the printed dollars that that are in circulation. Or I guess at this point, probably digital dollars as well. Okay. Since a majority of that... or we seem to be going into more of a digital currency. I got you. I'm glad you found that definition. Cause I've been looking for that for a minute. If I'm wrong though, it is possible. If there's anybody out there listening that, that no, understands finance a little bit better. And that's not what the M one money supply is. Let us know. Cause we like to be doubly sure about this stuff. We do because accuracy is very important. I mean, we don't want anybody listening to their show going, that ain't what the M1 money supply is. So if you know, then feed us the info. Let us know if we got it wrong. Now, bro, let me switch gears for a second. Let me ask you a question here. Given the fact that we can't pay back the national debt, which is at like 30 some trillion, and given the fact that all of this is being incurred because of the creation and implementation of the Federal Reserve System, do you think that that same system should be abolished, especially considering the extreme chaos and impact that its collapse could have on fiscal markets, both domestically and abroad and on life here in the States? You know, its impact on just you and me, let alone everyone else that we know who would be affected. Should we really abolish the Fed? Oh, Absolutely. Like there's a there's a there's a group of people out there that are like, oh, we need to audit the Fed. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I think we're way past auditing the Fed. Like just basic understanding of how it works. I think we have to abolish it. I mean, because I said and, a moment ago with JFK that uh, that auditing it wasn't going to work. I'm curious why you think 
that abolishing it is the is the right move. Well, to to borrow from G. Edward Griffin, okay. just because he's so well structured this argument, he's got seven reasons to Ooh. abolish the Fed. I like a list. Let me let yes. Me so it is incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives. It is a cartel operating against the public interest. It is the supreme instrument of usury. It generates our most unfair tax, which is inflation. It encourages war. It destabilizes the economy. And it is an instrument of totalitarianism. Those are some big dog charges. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> Ooh. Try committing and that list to memory. That's a lot. Yeah. It, it probably should be one that we have committed to memory. I'm working on some others. Maybe I'll I'll get to, to this one here in a minute. Same. <laughs> but I mean, you were right. He fleshes out really well. Yeah. And when he says that um, it is incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives, mm-hmm. I had to I had to look up and it says that the uh, the five stated objectives of the Federal Reserve are conducting monetary policy, promoting financial stability, supervising and regulating financial institutions and activities, fostering payment and settlement systems safely and efficiently, and promoting consumer protections and community development. (laughs) Okay. I don't think they've done a very good job of that. I don't think so either. I don't think they're set up to actually achieve these things. I'll give the first one, maybe conducting monetary policy. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But promoting financial stability? No. Supervising and regulating financial institutions and activities? That's a little vague. But even yeah. with that, you know, you can't have the derivatives market that has existed and the amount of 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 uh catastrophic financial impact that is created and really be supervising and regulating financial institutions and activities. And this is completely inconsistent with Alan Greenspan's vision. And he was the longest serving chairman of the federal reserve system in its history. He believed in, he he adopted the view of, of Ayn Rand, which is the whole idea that you shouldn't really enforce. You shouldn't enforce regulation on people. So, Repeal regulation, allow the markets to correct for what regulation would actually produce and just have a free market society, free market economy. Okay. Which produced gross negligence and abuse. I was so surprised. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand how this could possibly happen. You know, he was getting an interview later and he was like, you, you'd have to understand my shock. I built a whole a whole, you know, life on this philosophy. And I'm just shocked to see that it didn't work. I'm like, shut up. You lock your doors at night. Mm-hmm. You provide a means of regulation. Yeah. Why? Why don't you just keep your doors open, Mr. Greenspan? Let's let the free market of, of supply and demand. <laughs> you got you got the supply and I demand you give it to me. Let's yeah. let that just work. And even just even professionally though, if he's a chairman of the the Federal Reserve. There's regulations on how much interest the government has to pay back. The fact that they have a monopoly, so you're not allowed to use any other type of currency except Federal Reserve notes. Like exactly. it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't hold up. 
you know, fostering payment and settlement systems safely and efficiently. That's a little scary, especially considering what they're pushing here, uh, what they just launched. And what was it, June or July? Fed now. Fed now. Exactly. Mm hmm. A whole payment yeah. system that's built off the back of the Federal Reserve System, which I'm, I don't trust. Exactly. And then promoting consumer protections and community community development. Consumer protections? You're throwing <laughs> us deeper into debt bondage. Mm-hmm. What form of protection are you offering? Like that almost sounds like the New York, the classic New York protection scheme. I'm sure it yeah. doesn't happen just in New York, but you know, this is what we see in the, in the documentary <laughs> films that we both, you know, take in. Oh, for sure. For you sure. Know, they go in, they find a local mom and pop shop and hit them up for a little cash for protection. You understand from, from the other thugs. But of course, if you don't pay me, I'm going to have to tighten you up a little bit and you pay me more on, on the back end, but it, it, yeah. it, it's a protection fee. They're promoting consumer protection and they're the biggest instrument of usury. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. And the community development? Come on. Yeah, it's it's a joke. This is wild. Sounds yeah. good on paper. It does on paper. It just doesn't make sense in the real world. No, it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Right, for sure. The other thing uh, Investopedia tells us is that a central bank is a financial institution given privileged control over the production and distribution of money and credit for a nation or group of nations. In modern economics, the central banks usually responsible for the formation of monetary policy and regulation of member banks. So this is a part that we have yet to get into a little bit. The, the regulation of monetary policy and member banks. Okay. So... The first thing to recognize when you're looking at you know, how all of this works is that banks don't have their own money. They have your money. Yeah, there's a difference. Yo. <laughs> That's huge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy when you, when you realize how all this stuff works. So they hold your money and they reward you with small amounts of interest for leaving your money with them. And then they turn around and they lend your money out to other people, charging them large amounts of interest on your money. All right. Is, that's crazy, right? It's insane. Like unless, you're not borrowing. Unless I was ahead. a banker. And this is the only way it would be dope if I was the banker. <laughs> but as the person is getting lended to, no, it's an insane system of lending. Yeah. There's a, there's a section in the book, the, uh, the Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, where I think it's a, it's this little skit of like a, a son asking his dad, hey, should I go open a bank account? And after his dad runs through exactly how it works, the kid's like, well, I'd be better off going and opening a bank. Exactly. Not a bank account. It's exactly. Like, yeah, that's then exactly then how it, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's nuts. So there's one thing that we fail to realize is that, I don't want to say we fail to realize, one thing that isn't taught very well in schools is that there are different types of money. Yes. You know, we th- this comes out a little bit when we hear people talk about return to the gold standard and things like that, but I, I don't think many people are educated well. If they are, it didn't come from public education on how um, or what types of money actually exist. So there's commodity currency, receipt currency, fractional reserve currency, and fiat currency are the four main types. Okay. 
Now you're going to have to break that down because I know most people are probably like me and have no clue because the only there's only one type of money I know, and that's greenbacks. You didn't mention that <laughs> in this list. <laughs> okay, okay. So before there was an agreed upon standard of currency, there was what's called commodity currency, which okay. is essentially it's, it's just bartering, right? I have eggs and need meat. You have meat and need eggs. We agree to a certain number of eggs is worth, you know, precise amount of meat, and then we trade. Okay. Sounds ominously sexual, but cool. <laughs> eggs and meat, okay. Yep, ignoring that. Keep moving. So this continued until precious metals began to emerge. And in, in some cultures, they used other things, seashells, things like that. Okay. Um, but they began to emerge as a more standardized form of trading because it was easier to have a specific weight. It was easier to, to, to um, measure and engage those things. Okay. The problem is metal is heavy and carrying around lots of metal to trade for goods and services ended up being quite cumbersome. So what began to happen is that the goldsmiths would offer to hold the gold for people at a small price, right? Hey, you pay me a little bit, I'll hold the gold. I mean, he's got all the storage and everything anyway. Okay. And what would happen is he would then issue, or she, probably he at this point in history, would issue receipts for the gold that he had stored. People then began to trade the receipts for goods and services you know, instead of having to carry around gold, they could just be like, oh, here, you know, here's 50 pieces of gold over at Jeff's place or whatever. And it's a receipt for the money. And then you're not having to exchange because gold and silver are, are quite heavy. You don't okay. have to carry that around and you don't have to trade it. You can just trade the receipts and then go and get it whenever you want. And that's way more money. convenient. Right, right. And it was based on either the gold standard or silver standard, you know, based whatever the, the amount of precious metals in storage. Gotcha. But an interesting thing happened here as the goldsmiths realized that about 80% of people never withdrew all of their gold. I feel something ominous coming on. Yes. Yes. This, this is where we get modern banking. Like we the were gold, going along so well, everything we, we society were. was humming along, <laughs> and somebody was sitting there going, "You know what? I I just did a slight calculation, mm -hmm. and uh, it appears to me that approximately eighty percent of people never take out their gold." Yep, I see a business opportunity. That that's exactly what happened. So the goldsmith started lending out receipts credit receipts for the gold that they had in storage, but it wasn't their gold. It was other people's gold. I was going to say that now that seems un immoral, not necessarily unethical. Right. But immoral. It is. Yeah. But this is where fractional reserve currency comes in. Okay. Because there's technically more receipts than there is gold. So the, the gold being what you have in reserves is not as much as a fraction of the receipts that are in currency. So you get fractional reserve currency. Okay, makes sense. So think for, for somebody that's having trouble tracking, imagine, Jason, you gave me 100 pounds of gold, okay. and I issue you a receipt for your 100 pounds of gold, right? Pretty simple. Yep. But then my neighbor comes over, and he wants to borrow, say, 50 pounds of gold. Okay. I'm like, cool, no problem. Here's, 
here's a receipt for 50 pounds of gold. You just got to pay me back. Right. But now there's $150 worth of receipts or 150 pounds of gold receipts floating around. And I only have 100 pounds of gold in my reserves. Right. So, so that's why it's called fractional reserve. And uh, it's technically still considered, this is where a lot of confusion is, it's technically still considered on the gold standard or backed by gold. Because gold is still a physical, there's still a physical medium that's present that has to be accounted for in order for the value of the receipt to make any sense. Right, exactly. Okay. But it is wrought with, with several problems. And the first problem being, when people realized goldsmiths, a.k.a. the bankers, were making more money on their gold while they were having to pay for them to hold it, mm -hmm. ca caused a little bit of an upset. So to appease the people, they began to offer interest instead of fees to hold people's gold. So this is why if you have so much money in your bank account and even more money in your savings account because there's less likelihood in some savings accounts you even have to agree to not withdraw money in certain intervals right like if you take some out you can't touch it again for three months six months whatever okay but the interest is higher and it's because the the bank is banking on the fact that you aren't going to take your money out so they can lend it to someone else and make more money on your money okay i got you but now instead of paying fees, we get a little bit of interest. So, you know, not all things being equal, but just because it's convenient. Sure. If I'm not using my money, you can make money off of it and then give some of it to me. Okay. But they make way more on our money than we ever did. Seems wrong, right? It does. It really does. And the second problem with the fractional reserve currency is that it actually weakens the buying power of the receipts. This is that hidden tax called inflation. This is one of the biggest issues. This, this is why you're always saying you can't legislate, you know, to fix inflation because this is where it comes from. Exactly. It's, simp it's simple supply and demand. If you are issuing more receipts, then there is a demand for gold, then the receipts continually get worth less and less and thus require you to have more receipts to maintain purchasing power. Exactly. That's the issue. That's why going back to a gold standard will not fix the problem because we still have central banks practicing fractional reserve banking. It won't fix it. So you got to correct that. both things. Thank you. Yeah. And the only thing that allowed, like before central, before we get into central banking, because we're going through the history of banking, the only thing that allowed this kind of fractional reserve banking to go on as long as it did is because if the banks overextended their credit and people would want to withdraw their gold, they would run out. And it's called a run on the bank. And the bank would go out of business. So at the very least, there's a small measure of accountability and reasons for bankers to actually lend modestly to stay in business. Okay. You know, so that, that's where some of the, the policy of, you know, you, your credit score and things like that are all a joke now because they'll lend you any amount of money at any point in time because they're just making it out of debt. But this originated from a need to be very selective 
and who they lent money out because they got in big trouble if it didn't get paid back because it was never their money to begin with. And exactly. if it didn't get paid back and somebody wants their money, you're out of business as a bank. Right. There, there's, there's no hope. But <laughs> enter the central bank. So the central banks help to alleviate. This is that other s- section, right? They control monetary policy and membership of the uh, member banks and all of that. They help to alleviate the responsibility to lend responsibly. Because if there is a central bank that has the power to issue currency, then if a member bank overextends its credit, instead of suffering the run on the bank and going out of business like it should for poor business practices, instead of that happening, they receive additional currency from the central bank. I think this would be considered a bailout. Yes. Yes. And the central bank is responsible for the monetary policy that allows those provisions for bailouts from government funds and all of that. Bro, do you know what the difference between monetary and fiscal policy is? Because we hear these terms a lot in the news, and I'm not sure I can differentiate the two. That's actually a really good question, uh, which I had to go look up because monetary policy and fiscal policy, they actually uh, refer to the two most widely recognized tools that are used to influence a nation's economic activity. You know, according to Investopedia.com, monetary policy is primarily concerned with the management of interest rates and the total supply of money in circulation. And it's generally carried out by central banks, such as the the Federal Reserve here in the United States. Uh, Fiscal policy, on the other hand, is a collective term for the taxing and spending actions of a government. In the United States, the national fiscal policy is determined by the executive and legislative branches of, of the government. That's interesting. Yeah, so they're very different. And if you don't make those distinctions, you'll end up, you can end up using them interchangeably and they're not interchangeable. Yeah, that's crazy. Because I would have guessed monetary and fiscal policy were the same. Exactly. Because they sound the same. They do. They don't govern the same thing. They, they aren't made by the same groups. Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah, they're very different. Man, that's insane. But those the monetary policy that's written by the Federal Reserve allows for the money from the central bank purchasing those government bonds to go to these other institutions and bail them out, furthering the debt of the government, increasing inflation, all while removing any incentive to bank responsibly. That's huge. And this it is huge. And and this for me is one of the um, the nods to the Luciferian ideal. What do you mean? Is that if you look at the way that Satan thinks and the way that he navigates his lies on individuals, right? Okay. It's that you don't have to suffer the consequences of your behavior. Eat the apple. You won't die. You know? Sleep with us. It'll be all right. You can do all this and get everything that you want. You know, what is it they even say that if the price of, of sin was paid immediately, there'd be a lot, a lot of people doing things different? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that there's a part of Satan's operation that says you're not going to have to pay the cost for this. And there's a part of central banking, this Babylonian money magic that comes in and says, hey, you can, you can issue whatever type of loans you want, you can, as much usury as you want, as, as many loans as you can write down, and you have no responsibility for the fallout. 
you that's, won't be held accountable. That's crazy. Because I see kind of a modified version of what you're saying. Okay. Um, kind of what I see is that you pay the price, but it's delayed. Okay. And so if yeah. what you're getting has a form of pleasure, right? Because most people mm-hmm. aren't going to commit sin that just hurts. <laughs> sin is pleasurable. Even the Bible <laughs> says that. Right. You know? It's good for a season. It, it is. There's There's a pleasure to it. Essentially, what you're doing is you're buying pleasure on credit. Oh, okay. I can get you this immediate pleasure up front, and you don't have to quote unquote pay for it until later. <laughs> but you will pay with interest, and that interest may come in the form of your life. But eh, tomato, tomato, live, live right now. You live for right now. Go ahead and get this. That's interesting. That's a, yeah, that's a crazy idea. It's crazy Man. to think, okay, first time I got introduced to finance, I took an economics class in college, right? And I felt super okay. smart that I was sitting in an economics class. I also felt super out of my debt. Okay. Right? I had no idea. That shouldn't be debt. It should be depth. Uh, but felt completely <laughs> just, outpaced. Just by going to an economics class, you were completely out of debt. <laughs> right, right. Completely out of debt. But no, I was out of my depth. And... uh they were talking about things like supply and demand and all this other stuff, these concepts I had never heard of. Opportunity costs, all this stuff. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And once I, I got over some of the initial shock, the coolest thing about economics was that it had less to do with finances and had a whole lot more to do with decision making. Okay. If that's true, this is one of the things that, that the professor was telling us. If that's true, and it would seem to me that economics is probably more of a branch of philosophy than it is of mathematics. Huh. It's a decision. It's how we think about the choices we make. Right. Now that opens up a huge door of intriguing thought for me. Okay. Like what? If it's about decision-making, if, if it's about philosophy and the way that I think, then you're literally dealing with my mind. And as I make decisions, I got to be exchanging one thing for another because that's how thoughts work. Okay. Now, I don't know what I'm exchanging. But if I am exchanging something, then there must exist an economy somewhere. Okay. Right? Starting to sound like maybe I'm, I'm you know, trading on some level. Okay. Okay. And that got a little intriguing to me, but I put it down because I, I was new to the game and I wasn't ready to <laughs> go that far down the rabbit trail at that moment. But now here I am front and center having to deal with it in this episode. And it's, it's just kind of wild to see that sometimes things get classified in our minds in a way that I think is improper and that improper classification leads to an opportunity to exploit our lack of understanding. Okay. So if you that just think of economics as a, as a monetary or as a uh, mathematical thing or a numbers game or something like that, and you don't mm-hmm. equate it to decision-making, then you're already behind the eight ball. Because an advertiser is going to come in and understand that, and they're going to play to your way of thinking in order to get to your wallet. And once they go through your wallet, they're really trying to get to your heart. No, that makes sense. Now, that's that's wild. 
It is. Just, there's economies all over the place and they're not necessarily um, financial, if you will. Like there's an right. economies game that's being played at Netflix just for your, your time to watch. Yeah, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's an economies game that's being played at, at other places and other sectors of society that don't seem immediately tied to the world of finance. So I'm not thinking economics. I'm not thinking supply and demand. I'm not thinking opportunity costs. I'm not thinking opportunity costs was the one of the things that stuck out to me in economics class because it basically made the point that for every choice that you make for something, there's a cost to that choice that denies you the ability to choose other things. So if you choose the red car, the opportunity cost is you can't have the other colored cars. Okay. Right? And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, wait, wait, that kind of sucks. <laughs> I didn't want to know that. I want all the cars. <laughs> I can see how that was a detrimental thing to teach you. <laughs> <laughs> right? What, what do you mean? I, I can only have one? <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's a cost. But then that, that gets played in other areas of your life. Mm-hmm. There's a cost to, do you want to drink the pot? There's an opportunity cost. There's something that you're there, giving up in order to do that. There's there an opportunity is. cost if you want to drink the water. Right. You can play this over so many different things. Hey, if I if I only have 24 hours in a day, there's a, a cost to me taking the opportunity to, let's say, sit down and spend two hours watching TV just to relax. Opportunity cost is I could have been reading a book. I could have been in a conversation with a human being. I could have been further deepening relationships. If I chose to further deepen relationships, there's a cost. I could have been watching TV. I could have been playing Xbox. I could have been maybe writing a song on the piano or something. It's crazy to see that relationship. And we don't always think in those terms of what I'm doing. There is a relationship to other things that I could be doing or shouldn't be doing or should be. You know what I mean? We just think in a very straightforward, myopic, tangential fashion. Mm -hmm. And we're trained to think that way by people who understand these principles that we're talking about. That most of us are like, economics, that's boring crap. That's for dudes with suspenders, glasses, and a pocket (laughs) organizer. I got tired for that. Yeah. And the fact is we're, we're all making economic decisions, choices every day. Weighing the cost. Do I stay with that woman or do I sleep with that one? There's an opportunity cost, bro. What you going to do? You know, it's so critical to begin to retrain how we see different, different subjects and topics so that we take away the, exploitative advantage that our enemy has and what he understands about it. And given what we don't, that's crazy, bro. Cause they, they really have conditioned us to think a certain way. And because our thinking is kind of in this box, it definitely allows them to take advantage of us. Right. And I think, I think one of the things that we, we have to dissuade ourselves of is that finance and economy are actually human institutions. They're not. They existed before humanity ever showed up on the scene. Okay, you know that's like a mind-blowing idea, right? <laughs> oh, it is. It is, but we we have biblical um, foundation for this. I was about to the ask Bible- you, like, how do you know? You can't make a huge <laughs> statement like that and it just, we leave it. Tell me. <laughs> Beginning, middle, end. Tell it. <laughs> well, the Bible tells us that Satan was actually turned to violence because of the abundance of his trade. And since you've unpackaged the whole trade idea, like it's got my my brain spinning on 
you know, his economy, his way of thinking, his decisions. Uh, But Ezekiel 28, 16 says, by the abundance of your trade, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing out of of the mountain of God. So it's interesting. He was trading. It means that there was a celestial economy. And That's wild, man. On like on, on multiple levels. Number one, if you were to ask most people why Lucifer got kicked out of heaven, I, I think conventional Christian wisdom, if you're a standard issue Christian, you're probably going to mm-hmm. go to the five I wills. Okay. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe you'll fair. condense that into, well, he was just prideful and, and, and God had to kick him out. But this right here gives a, a very detailed description of why. The fact that he became filled with violence. And I had to look it up. Like, what what does it mean to be violent? And according to uh, New Oxford American Dictionary, violence is a behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. Okay, that that's crazy. Because that means he was trading in a way that was hurtful. And it was actually bringing damage and designed to actually kill the people that he was trading with. And by by saying people, I don't just mean human beings. Whatever entities right. he was trading with, those trades filled him with violence. That's nuts. Okay, take it a little step further, man. So since you buy one of the few people I can play with these ideas with and do these thought exercises. Okay. So you know that the scripture that most of us misquote all the time, money is the root of all evil? Uh Uh-huh. Right, but that's not what it says? No, it's the love of money. Exactly. That thing, the love of it, is the root of all evil. Well, what does money allow you to do? In an economic system, it allows you to realize your own desires. Right? Okay. You get enough Mm -hmm. of it, you can manifest what you want. You do not have to go to God to get the thing you want. You just need enough money. Okay. This is what makes money appealing. It's not like the dollars are appealing. It's what they can give you. It's almost God-like power. I can have whatever I can afford to buy. Cool. Give me all the money so I can have all of what I want. Okay. Right? That, that mm-hmm. seems to be the thing. So if you go back to Lucifer making these trades in a cosmic pre-Adam, so we'll call it a, a pre-Adamic environment, right? Before the creation of Adam. So before the creation of man, Satan was able apparently to trade in a way that got him what he wanted and he didn't have to go through God to get it. And he okay. liked it. Interesting. He liked the power it gave him. Right? So there's a certain measure of falling in love with that. That he got. And then he started trading in a way. He started conducting his economic affairs in a way that were injurious to others. This means this had to go on for a little bit of time. That also means there must have been time given for Satan to make a correction. Okay. Yeah. Right? Because it says you became filled. That involves a process. <laughs> right. It doesn't it just happen. 
Yeah, exactly. So, so God in His mercy, I think, was probably watching this. Yeah, hey, hey, straighten it, straighten that crap up. All right, stop it, <laughs> knock it off. Mm-hmm. Like, let's get this right. Even we see with um, with Cain when Cain when Cain approached God incorrectly, there was this window that he was granted to get things right. Mm-hmm. Talking about sin is crouching at your door to to take over. Right. But you got a master. So don't give in to this. Actually do it the right way. He could have corrected. I think possibly Satan could, of course, correct it. But he was like, oh, hell no. I'm standing. I don't know if he's got 10 toes. I'm standing 10 toes down, <laughs> six wings in and two horns up. Not okay. to even have horns. You know what I'm saying? He really mm-hmm. committed to the cause and said, this is it. And this, I think, marks a couple interesting things. One, I think this is the source point of pre-Adamaic iniquities, a line of perversions that extend back before the creation of humanity that the Luciferian bloodlines are tapping into with what they create in the earth. Secondly, and probably even more importantly, I think this is what really gives Satan his quote unquote power. Or whatever trades that he made seems to put him at the central crosshairs of the kingdom of darkness. Mm-hmm. That he's not necessarily the most powerful dark entity by way of sheer force. I mean, even yeah. from a biblical perspective, he's he's not even the last enemy to be destroyed, which always blew my mind. That's interesting. Because the okay. last the, the final enemy is death. That's the last enemy to be destroyed. I'm like, well, I thought Satan would be the last one. And of course, Satan's a title, but, you know, whoever. Right, right. You know, the, the ancient dragon of old. I okay. figured he would have been the last one to be destroyed, and he's not. I think it, it shows that he might not be the most powerful being, but he is the most central being. And I think it's due largely in part to whatever prehistoric trade agreements he holds that make him the central figure. Okay. That Which makes is sense. Super, super fascinating. Mm-hmm. And all of this, I think God's like, you gotta go. Get out. Yeah. I think it's interesting, and I'm not a hundred percent sure what the the history and the origin, because you know, we did the history of soulmates and, and those types of things. But there's a age-old idea that you can sell your soul to the devil, right? Right. Devil devil went down to Georgia. You know, we have all these different reiterations of that. And uh, even if it is pagan, it's interesting that we actually have biblical record of souls being traded. Okay, Are you cover that. Okay, so Revelation 18 talks about Babylon and yes. the fall of Babylon. Yes. And so Revelation 18, 11 through 13, it says, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oils and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and here's the clincher. And bodies and souls of men. Oh, I guess women are okay. We're screwed. (laughs) They don't have souls. Wow! Not 
direction <laughs> I was going <laughs> at all. My bad. Yeah. My mistake. You talk about that. Is that what I? <laughs> my goodness. We just lost half our listeners right there. <laughs> I'll tell you what's so I ain't got. It. I'm uh, I apologize no. <laughs> to all of our female listeners. I think most of our patrons are female. Yeah, that listen, was, that listen was, anybody that listening that, that feels some way about that, direct <laughs> all of your traffic to Christopher.Dean <laughs> at ORPpodcast.com. That's where those emails should go. Uh, Don't say none of those at me. I think women have beautiful <laughs> souls. Very, very valuable in the soul trade. <laughs> No, just in in that form of English, if there's not a distinction of male or female, men, or they they default to the masculine. Okay. So instead of saying mankind, it would be the souls of men. So it doesn't just mean men. Men and women were having their souls traded in Babylon, considered merchandise. Which is... But much. I wonder how much the soul of a person that's not sure of where they fall on that male-female scale... I wonder how much that soul's worth. I don't know. A lot of time and effort has gone in to distort the body of those individuals. But it's the soul you're after. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Fun little thought exercise. Maybe if we ever get a demon that we want to talk to, which I'm not planning on doing ever. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's rewind that. Maybe we'll ask God when we're not busy. See, there you go. See if he'll tell us the answer. <laughs> I see like like three little devil ears popped up. I got an answer. It'll only cost uh-uh. you your soul. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so this would indicate the soul trading is a real thing. Yeah. And the slight side tangent, it has me thinking about like the dehumanizing of so much of our of marketing, right? Like sex sells, pornography, the propaganda that we get anytime we go to war against another group of humans. It's always to dehumanize. So it's interesting to me that there's got to be a connection there to soul trade. Because it talks, because in this scripture, it says buys their merchandise, merchandise of. So Babylon would have considered the bodies and souls of mankind as nothing but merchandise. That's wild. Yeah. Like the whole idea that that the soul is just almost a form of commerce. I mean, a commodity. Yeah, exactly. There's another verse in scripture that actually deals with soul trading. Okay. It's in Ezekiel 13. I think it's Ezekiel 13, 18, where God actually confronts women who were using um, charms or amulets, if you will, and handkerchiefs in order to practice this ancient form of Babylonian soul, soul hunting. Interesting. And he actually asked, you know, will are you, are you going to continue to hunt the souls of my people and think that I'm not going to come after you? Huh? Like this was a thing. And it's even thought that Nimrod's, not an epithet, but his 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 um maybe it is an epithet. I don't know what the the proper term is, but the fact that he was considered a a hunter before the Lord mm-hmm. to us sounds like he was really good at getting deer and elk. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? Not really true. sure why he should get a biblical mention. That doesn't sound too amazing. Mm-hmm. But further study, I think it was Chuck Missler who first alluded to this. He talked about how what he was really hunting, what Nimrod was really after, what were souls of people and utilizing that power in okay. order to gain spiritual uh, authority and control. And again, this it's funny to me how sometimes these ideas that come up in the Bible, they seem completely outlandish within a biblical context, right? We're reading the Bible and we're like, here you go, more fairy tale bullcrap. <laughs> Yeah. But it's so fascinating to me that those same concepts which generate that type of a of a of a criticism on the biblical narrative are the very same conceptual ideas that are put out for our consumption in the entertainment world. Yeah. What am I talking about? Look, dude, you got you got a guy right now, very famous character within the Mortal Kombat franchise. That consumes souls in order to gain power. Who am I talking about? Shang Tsung. You remember the movie when the dude was like, your soul is mine. That evil looking dude. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. The whole thing is he was a sorcerer who every time he beat somebody, he stole their soul. Stored it in an amulet and it gave him power. Okay. Funny, we can buy it for a video game. Don't scoff at the idea one bit. What I got to do? A-A-B-A? Ha ha, your soul is mine. I got your soul. <laughs> you come into a biblical conversation, you're like, what? Soul hunting? That's re- that's crazy. Yeah, but it, I mean, it looks like it's not, though, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a real thing. And even people like Dan Duvall have constantly talked about how being on the front lines dealing with rescuing people from the, the bondage and the damage incurred through certain abuse rituals the fact that they are many times showing up with portions of their soul missing is That's really speaking thought. to the, yeah. Like he's, he said it in, in an interview. He said, you know, most people will be shocked to find out that during a lot of those sessions, when we get into really what's going on and get into their, what's happening in their soul realm, that they may be dealing with maybe 60% of their soul left. Interesting. It is because then it speaks to a much larger concept. We, we could save this for a little bit later uh, in the episode. But the idea of, of soul fracturing is not just soul trading, soul fracturing, um, soul transportation. Like you're transporting it going to different places. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the stuff is, is really, really big business in the spiritual world. Interesting. And it's crazy because they don't want you to know any of this. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like none of this is is on the 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 not poster board, but the uh listen, you just billboard. keep playing your Xbox, you keep playing Candy <laughs> Crush, you keep watching NFL, okay? Nothing to see here. That's how they cover it up. They do. So, bro, here's here's a question I've got, something that's been kind of eating away at me a little bit. If we consider the fact that there are trades being made in the unseen realm by Lucifer, right? Mm-hmm. And then we we also consider that in our realm, the United States is like the preeminent, almost the only superpower left. And the world runs off of more or less Western or American business. And our country specifically is a country that not only has opened up its spiritual coffers to all pagan gods, 
But at the top of that list sits Lucifer himself, which means this country for all intention and all intents and purposes is a Luciferian outpost. Does this country as a Luciferian outpost in the natural realm actually engage in soul trading to counter, not counteract, but in in correlation with what is happening in the unseen realm with Lucifer Street. Yeah, for sure. I think America is engaged in soul trade and it's frustrating for me having two new children, knowing whether or not to get them birth certificates and social security numbers, because there's lots of information um, and ideas around what it actually is. One school of thought actually holds that the birth certificate itself is a type of magic because it's uh, sealed with a sigil or, you know, a, a notary stamp. And it somehow, you know, binds the identity of a person to a um, supernatural governing agency. Okay. I was wondering how that connects because I've heard this sigil magic uh, idea presented with the birth certificate, but I didn't understand really what it meant. Like, I, yeah. I still don't know what a sigil is. A sigil is like, it's... Um, it's not necessarily like a vision board, but a sigil is when you use language and you, you use written language on a, um, either a piece of paper or something that, um, you, you hope enacts specific magics, right? Like hopes and dreams, desires. I, I want to see all this happen in my future. So you would write it down and then you would either send it away or you would destroy it. It's a way of like compressing intention and magic via um, word magic into an object, and then it becomes a sigil. Okay. How would this apply then to a birth certificate? Because it's a, like you said, it's a governing agency that's dedicated itself to all pagan gods, and it has the identity of a person printed on a piece of paper, and then with the um, a notary stamp from this this organization sealing it, um, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly like what, what the intention is, is if it's to gain access to this person, to have the ability to trade souls of this person, like it, specifically what happens in the supernatural, I'm not sure, but that's the idea behind the sigil magic of the birth certificate. Okay. Is that it's supposed to grant some type of supernatural access via sigil magic. To the person but, whose name is contained on the yes. certificate. Interesting. Yep. Okay. So if that's even a little bit too far out, th this, this other one's bad enough, right? So we get um, our birth certificates, uh, usually in order to get a social security number or whatever. And this registers us as citizens of the United States. But, <sighs> and not as much citizens of the United States is legally or technically we become resources of the corporation of the United States, which is located in the district of Columbia. So we become resources and used as collateral for the debt incurred by this foreign corporation. Okay. No, 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 no. You're not, <laughs> you're not skipping past that. Okay. You got to break this down because I've heard this again before from different sources, but never uh -huh. in, in a, uh, in a concentrated fashion. Okay. This one was almost enough for me to, if I had hair, I'd be pulling it out, right? Okay. Very, why? very frustrating because it's 
it's almost impossible unless you know the specific law and code to look up to find any of this. So what happened was in there was the District of Columbia Organic Act of 1871. So we're going back a little bit of time. In the Organic Act of 1871, the government of the United States of America was replaced by the corporation called the United States. And it was set up to exist within the District of Columbia. So a lot of people will look at Organic Act 1871. Is it just established the District of Columbia is the capital of the United States? Okay. That, that's what they teach you in school. Right. So there's a couple other places. They did away with those play, places. They put them all together. And right like here city, in D.C. The county that was there. Right. All of that. So the Maryland be, and Virginia had to donate land. Right, all of a which is establishes a interesting. Federal right. right, right, Virgin right. Mary and all of that, but yeah, so it just established this particular chunk of land, not being a state, not being you know have any of the other legal bindings, and it just becomes the capital of the United States. But within that, the United States gets registered as a corporation, and the legal location of the United States, of the entire United States. Now, if you say United States of America, that's different. When you say United States, typically seen in all capital letters, it denotes a corporation that is located within the District of Columbia. And if you are a citizen of the United States, it means that you are a human resource or an employee of the corporation, the United States, located in the District of Columbia not a citizen of a governing agency that covers all of, you know, from sea to shining sea. So basically we're dealing with word magic, if you will, because there's a difference between United States and America. So if someone mm -hmm. was to ask you, are you a citizen of the United States? What, what the average person would translate into their head is, do I belong to America? Right. The United States of America. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not what's being asked. Uh -uh. It's very specific legal jargon. And legal terms are oftentimes different from their pedestrian counterparts. This is true. This is true. So I spent hours trying to find this because I knew it existed. Okay. And I finally, I have um, Brandon Joe Williams, who's a guy that does a lot of... Um, uh, like fighting back against the law, that paying taxes and all these things, being an employee, being a human resource is something that we've all agreed to. And there's actually ways to um, get out of those contracts. He was the one that pointed me in, in the right direction. Because if you don't have the exact law and code, you will search forever trying to find this information. So anyone that's interested, you don't have to just take ORP's word on it. If you, you can even use Google. That's how easy it is. If you know precisely what you're looking for, type in 28 to eight USC three zero zero two into the search bar. And then you'll either get like Cornell university, some college or whatever is going to pull up their, uh, law document and 28 USC 3002, section 15, subsection A, it says that United States means a federal corporation. 
It's not the government that you think it is, a federal corporation. And then, and then if you look up UCC 3-907, take it down to section H, it says the location of the United States. The United States is located in the District of Columbia. Yo. Yes. What? Uh Uh-huh. It's crazy. Oh, my goodness. This is nuts. Mm Mm-hmm. And when we get birth certificates or birth bonds, as as some terms um, describe them, we become resources of this corporation located in D.C., and some even say that birth certificates are bought and sold on the stock exchange because if you look, on, there's a birth certificate number. And I haven't done this, so this would take a little bit more research if you're interested. But if you find your birth certificate, you can even order, it costs $50, a long-form birth certificate because there's a lot more information attached to this document that you aren't given. You have to request the long-form birth certificate. And it has a bunch of other information. But in that information is a number that is actually... Um, registered through the New York Stock Exchange that they are trading in birth certificates or birth bonds of individuals. Were you aware of the fact that the the, the average person, when they get a birth certificate back, they get a notarized copy and the original birth certificate is not sent? And if they need to have a print of the original done, it's printed up typically by a company called the the American Bank Company. Really? Otherwise known as ABC Orp. If you were to write them out, American Bank and then C-O-R-P. Interesting. And it's a bank that sends you a copy of the birth certificate. Yeah. Wow. Now, Dan Duvall talked about this at great length, man. Uh, you know, it's hard. I, I keep feeling like we're giving him constant shout outs, but <laughs> the man puts out really good information. And he said that there's like a a dollar amount. And I've heard this from other people as well, an actual value for the, the, the certificate that is being traded on the stock exchange. Okay. I believe it's between 650 to $750,000. Because as assets of a corporation, we'd have to have a monetary value. We'd have to, but then that monetary value is being used partially to offset the debt of the United States. As collateral, right? Exactly. Man. Which then, to my question I asked you, sounds a whole lot like trading on souls. It does. Okay, this is quick, quick side tangent. So we got off the gold standard and we became a fiat currency. Then it said that we tried to back our money with land, right? Yeah. Which is how you get the EPA, right? The EPA. Yeah. And then that didn't work. So then we decided to back our money with petrol, which is why it's called today the American petrol dollar. Okay. So we we actually function like a mafia. We go to these places that are um, drilling for oil and we say, hey, look, if you only accept American dollars, then we'll make sure that you are quote unquote safe. Okay. No problem. America's a superpower. We'll do that. And... A few times, you know, they decide, they, people even ask, these institutions, these countries would actually ask the United Nations, hey, uh, America's not doing real great. Is it cool if we just sell a little bit of this oil using a different currency? Yeah, no problem. 
And then coincidentally, we have reason to invade these countries, you know, for, <laughs> for, <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, Undisclosed, weapons of mass destruction. Or, yeah. Yeah. For, for selling their oil using something, a different currency than America. As you were kind of explaining this, this dollar amount, this currency, the fact that we're actually assets and collateral to back up the debt that our government is getting into, I hear consistently that it's the death of human, of American citizens that triggers us to act in, in, in wars. And part of that could be because um, uh, the American government is defending its citizens, right? Okay. However, Tuskegee, MKUltra, I mean, you go down the list and clearly the government is not that concerned no, with the preservation. But if you're taking away their assets. That's it. I that's never why they thought care. of that. Mm-hmm. Dude, that's crazy. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Good so the American next time- boys and girls are dying overseas and we need to get involved. That's uh-huh. going to be the rhetoric you hear. Right. Translate that to they're destroying our money. They're destroying our collateral. They're destroying our human resources. That's why we're taking action. Exactly. It's a monetary issue. That's nuts. Oh my goodness. Man. <laughs> so yeah, not not sure how to follow that one up exactly. But uh Right? Uh knowing the problems inherent and the corruption in the system, I think is only half of the battle though. Knowing how to handle it is another thing completely. So Again, Dan Duvall, we mentioned him a lot. He's got great prayers on how to battle against the spiritual aspects of the system, right? The soul trade, the contracts, the sigils, the things that you don't know are going on. Maybe things that happened before you were even born. Yes. There, there's supernatural spiritual authority that needs taken in that realm. But then also there's navigating the, the finance part of it. Because we we have to have at least as it stands in the society now, in the culture now, we have to have money to pay bills and, and, and do things. And I mean, outside of escaping the system altogether, we have to know how to navigate it. And the Bible tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So we need to be as wise as we possibly can, as savvy as we can be, as methodical as we can be when it comes to navigating the finances, especially knowing that they're stacked against us. Right. So... Even at that, though, the the answers seem to be as diverse as the problems when it comes to navigating this financial institution. So Dave Ramsey has financial peace. He's got, uh, if you're interested in getting out of debt, he has a fantastic way of navigating that. He, he's written a few books on it. He, uh, there's churches that will go through his program to help people gain financial peace and understanding and, and really discipline over their finances. Um, Dan Duvall also says that getting out of debt is the key to financial peace. Um, with the Bible actually running uh, an economy different than that of Lucifer's economy. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible warns us that the borrower is the slave to the lender, but then through Jesus Christ, we also have instances like the bread and fish, right? Yeah. That just a couple, uh, uh, a few, two, what is it? Two fish and three pieces of bread, or I, I can't remember the specific number off the top of my head. Two fish, but that five was, loaves. There you go. 
was enough to feed thousands and thousands of people and then even have more left over from them consuming that. So Dan Duvall says that this is the economy that we can get tapped into uh, through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that, that that's interesting. I think we should look into that and consider that because we definitely want God's blessing. And I think we want more than God's blessing on our life, but functioning in the supernatural power that he offers is really um, essential to okay. uh, navigating our life. So getting access to a, a, um, a supernatural economy that gives instead of takes away, I think is, is essential. But then another option or another way of looking at this would be the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert uh, Kiyosaki. And he says that debt should be used to acquire wealth. So his mentality is that you should understand how the system works and you should understand how it works so well that you use it against those that are trying to propagate control over your life. And he teaches that <laughs> what? Uh, you know, I, we, we've, you, you've kicked this around to me before uh-huh. offline. I know it's the first time we're bringing it up on the show, but it's been such okay. a great question. I hadn't really had an answer to it. I've heard a couple other people take a stab at it, but it wasn't until just now as you were asking it that the Holy Spirit dropped a couple things in my head that now it makes sense. Which why you can't take Kurosaki's approach. Okay. And it's not that it's bad advice. It is really smart advice, but it's advice that leverages or plays within a Luciferian system and doesn't account for spiritual interests or liabilities that have to offset the decisions that are made within that spiritual system. Now, what I mean by all that? Well, there was a guy, again, Dan Duvall was, was talking about this gentleman who had on his life a mandate that what he was supposed to do was to take his monetary resources and to use those to fuel the kingdom of God, to actually make money from those, like literally sow those into the kingdom and help fuel the the uh, the things that God wanted done, not necessarily to make money off of it. But what the what he decided to do, which seemed pretty smart, was to actually invest the money and then use the money that comes off of the investment to fuel the, the kingdom efforts. Right. OK. Seems Makes sense. Seems seems smart. What happened is he invested it and then the investment that he put it in went belly up and he never financially recovered and he couldn't figure out what was going on. Came to Dan DeVos. They were talking about it. They were in one of those sessions. Jesus is there and Jesus reveals what occurred in the spiritual realm as a result of the decision. And here's what it is. The man had a mandate on his life that was given to him by God to do X, Y, and Z with his resources, right? Mm -hmm. That mandate was recognized by the spiritual powers that govern the financial world of earthly uh, finance. Okay. What, when they recognized that mandate, they issued a judgment against him because he's doing something with those resources that are not in line with what the mandate requires. What okay. that allowed for was for them to seize the assets. They, they literally were able to take control, sink the investment so that it affected him because he was out of pocket. Mm. Which means he yeah. never recovered. The intention for why he was even given the money in the first place from a spiritual resource perspective was never achieved and the kingdom suffered. 
But That's he was only following legitimate smart advice that works within the Luciferian system. What right. that means then is that we have to recognize that there is wisdom for how to navigate a Luciferian system successfully, but it's still navigating it via Luciferian terms. Mm-hmm. And when you're called to navigate things from a kingdom of God perspective, it is not within Luciferian terms. It's outside of Luciferian terms. Right. Correct. It transcends that whole government of mm-hmm. Luciferian finance. This is why you have to be very careful and very keen on who you listen to and why you're listening to and why you definitely have to go back and pray about the decisions you make. Exactly. Exactly. But what all of these views have in common is that the fact, the way that we are conditioned to think about finances is wrong, right? Go to school, get a good job, work hard, save money, play the stock market. That's how you, that's how you become successful. That's how you make your mark in the world. That's how you generate right, right. or develop generational wealth. That's not true. The Luciferian system is not designed for that to develop wealth. That if the if the um, Jesus centered economy is rooted in doing what he says, then there's not going to be a cookie cutter answer for you. Th- this everyone gets pumped through the same machine, comes out of the school system, does what they're supposed to do, and this is going to produce a healthy life is a lie, and it's not how it works. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, sitting on money as the value disappears is not the road to financial freedom. So unfortunately, we, we need to know more. We need to know more than the people that are using and dabbling in the Luciferian system. And even those who are successful in the, the Luciferian system, we have to be able to know how it works to know how to avoid it. And we have to know how the economy of God works. Right. You know, we, the, it's, it's a lot more we have to know. But we have to change our thinking about it. We have to think differently about how the system works and how we interact with it. Exactly. I mean, that, because the system is set up to create losers. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is literally designed to create losers who play by the rules. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get that, if we're just thinking, hey, all I got to do is go to school, go to, you know, go to college, get a good job work my nine to five and I'll be fine. No, you won't. Even people who do that, there's a certain number of losers that have to be created by Mm -hmm. this system so that it, so that slavery is maintained. And And it's crazy because go ahead. I was just going to say the system is set up to also victimize you and blame you for your lack of success. Exactly. And then look at the, That's crazy. The, the examples of success that we see. Like, take like Amazon. They're one of the easiest to point to. For years, Amazon lost billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Going from this garage startup that sells books to becoming a, a, mega, a monolithic uh, titan of industry in the, in, in, within commerce. How? How did you survive? How do you survive losing billions of dollars a year, year over year, over year, over year? <laughs> you have to be yeah. propped up. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to have capital injections. Where's that money coming from? We just talked about it. It's coming from the Federal Reserve. It's being printed. So yeah. why? 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 Why is a government or why is a business allowed to to survive when it's obviously not doing business in a way that's survivable? 
Okay. And the reason is because it's chosen as a winner. And it's chosen mm-hmm. as a winner to achieve a particular objective. But if we're not keen to that, then what we're going to do is we're going to watch and we're going to be on the mindset of, you know, they said if you work hard, you really can achieve the American dream. And here's this guy who started out in his garage just selling books. And now look at him. He's like the third richest man ever on the planet. It is possible. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> and it's crazy because there's just enough freedom that you can you can learn how the Luciferian system works. You could take advantage of it and you could be successful, right? To the few people that take that initiative, there is enough freedom in that system that you can be temporarily successful. So, you know, we use the, the Bezos example. Somebody's going to be like, well, that doesn't happen to everybody. Not everybody. There are successful people out there that, that didn't receive, what was it, like $50 million to house CIA servers or whatever. Yeah, but <laughs> first off, none of them are nearly that successful. And second off, there has to be some type of um, pawns in play, right? Has to be. Like we are the fodder at the bottom. And then you have the, the pawns that are in play that make the system look free and accessible. And then you have the, the Gates and the Bezos and the, the, the Musks that show that if you really want to be successful, then you got to play the game. You got to be part of the quote unquote family, right? Yeah. It's it's wild, dude. Especially when you start figuring out like how much money that really is that they're making. I mean, it's it's on a scale that you you can't even really imagine. I mean, you you've got what? You've got Bezos, he his his net worth increased by 125.6 billion dollars over the last decade. Jeez. Okay, that breaks down to $12.56 billion per year. That breaks down to $34.4 <laughs> million per day. Jeez. That breaks down to $1.43 million per hour. That's a lot. I'm not breaking it down per second. That no. is... <laughs> crazy you think yeah. you get to that level by just pulling yourself by your own bootstraps uh-uh. there's no way that's there's a manufactured no level of success mm-hmm. oh and, and and one of the other stamps to prove that the system is based off of lies and deceit is even the name the federal reserve which is the institution that we get all of our money from right is a lie the the very basis of it the structure of it Never mind that it comes from the, the Rothschild Illuminati bloodline. Exactly. It's called the, the Federal Reserve. It is not federal. It is not a, governing, a government agency. And there are zero reserves. Exactly. It's word magic and lies in the very title of it. And we've got to understand that. Exactly. But Jason, Uh-oh. the Rothschilds are just one bloodline family and finance is only one area that Satan has hijacked to enslave the masses. I feel pressure coming on. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this ties to the larger multidimensional war, right? Mm-hmm. And if we leave our listeners ill-equipped to plug all of this into the larger framework, and even, even though we got them this far into the episode, if, if we left them that ill-equipped, we might as well have just been saying this. 
So help me out, Jason. Break down how trade, finance, celestial economy, all that ties into the satanic control matrix. Like I said, pressure. (laughs) But no, really good question, man. I I think first off, we have to remember that that the modern iteration of, of the satanic control matrix is the response to the tactical disadvantage of the forces of darkness found themselves in due to the operational success of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Namely, man now had unfettered access to the very source of truth, God himself. Like this is okay. huge because prior to that, man is is really subjected to abject darkness and deceit. Okay. Right? He doesn't have another option. Every other nation group is under the rule and reign of a Nephilim overlord. So pretty much Satan is having free reign control. But Jesus coming into the timeline and his specific death, it kicked off a cosmic clock. And this clock is actually really interesting because it's a it's a countdown, but you're not quite sure when it's going to hit zero. And you you get this 70 weeks of Daniel, which is found in, in the book of Daniel, chapter nine. You know, you have two conditions happening. You, you've got the Messiah being executed in this 69th week, and then you've got the return of the Messiah in the 70th week. And then the interval thereof is where we find ourselves currently. And it's referred to as the times of the Gentiles. And according to, I, I want to say it's uh, Romans, the, the fullness of the Gentiles must have the opportunity to come into the kingdom of God. That's the question mark. How many Gentiles mark the fullness of the Gentiles? You don't know. So don't every know. time someone with from a Gentile nation decides to, to come into the kingdom of God and swear allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ, that's a new number. It kicks that, that countdown. You know, it's a new tick. And I think, I've mentioned this a little bit before, but I think that's why there's such a... Um, an element of controlling the number of people on the planet on controlling them being that specific because if there's less people and more control then there's less likelihood of people being led to Jesus Christ there's less likelihood for that fullness of the Gentiles to come hey hey this is not your section my bad my bad (laughs) (laughs) sorry no it's an excellent point man (laughs) absolutely excellent I I think you're, you're spot on you know, we, we, we've got to remember that, you know, Jesus's incarnation, his insertion into the physical realm was tantamount to a match being lit in the middle of pitch black darkness. Right. As soon as you see that source, here's a funny thing about light. Light dispels darkness at, at its source. It pushes mm-hmm. darkness away. So you could be in a, in, a, in a pitch black room. I don't care where this source of light is. Because it pushes away darkness, you will notice it, right? And because okay. you notice it, you can reorient yourself towards it. You can triangulate. You can position on it. Now you can be drawn towards it. You can go after it. This is what is happening in the spiritual realm where there is complete darkness and Jesus comes on the scene. And this oh. actually necessitates the formation of two counteracting mechanisms that needed to be deployed by the kingdom of darkness. One, they had to de- they had to deploy the false reality overlay, and then two, the satanic control matrix. Now, the false reality overlay acts as a counteracting agent. You know, it's one of those things. Listen, <laughs> using that whole match in the middle of the field 
uh, analogy, mm-hmm. analogy or metaphor. I don't know. I'll figure that out later. Using that example, <laughs> you got the false reality. They'll really be like, you're not really seeing a match. It's been dark for umpteen years. You really think somehow a match just got lit? There's no match. You're crazy. You're imagining things. Wait, matter of fact, how do you even know what a match is? You haven't seen anything. It's been pure darkness for the longest. Listen, what I need you to do is get back to what you were doing. Forget that thing that you thought you saw. Right? It's going to be this mechanism in place that causes you to question what you're seeing. Or for the sake of this episode, the false reality overlay would be go to school, get a job, save money, work the stock market. Like all that. Nothing to see here. This is how it works. And it's, it's totally fine. Exactly. Then you've got the satanic control matrix. And see, this functions as a full spectrum dominance control protocol. It's like if you imagine this as a military campaign and you came into a region and an area of interest and you want to take control, you're not just going to take control of a few different sectors of of the country. You're going to want complete and total control. So you need to control the person, their home, the neighborhood, the surrounding communities, the cities, everything until you get the entire nation under your grasp. Right. And this is what we see happening in the satanic control matrix. It is a control dominance protocol that is broken up into three key areas. You wanna control the individual, you wanna control society, and then you wanna control the globe. This is huge. Individual control, social control, global control. When you get into the global control level, you're looking at establishing this this world order you know that on the individual level you're controlling obviously just the person when you're dealing with the social level you're controlling groups of people and then you need to take those groups what we'll call control groups and you need to funnel them into a overarching apparatus of control like a world order and what's happening now is that we're getting a new iteration of that world order called the new world order and it itself has three key areas of focus one is on politics religion and finance right we see this right in revelation there's going to be the creation of a one world government there's going to be the implementation of a one world religion and there will definitely be the institution of a one world economic system which we are beginning to see the uh the mooring and the structure, the the substructure being put in place to achieve that. And here's the thing, the the real scary idea behind this one world financial system is that at its core, it's going to function off of Babylonian money magic. And we got to remember, Babylonian money magic isn't just about monetary policy. It's really about trading souls. You know, if you were, as you mentioned earlier, Christopher, If you went up to a demon at the crossroads, like Robert Johnson did, and you Mm want to make a deal, you can't bring the demon like a a gold bar and offer it to him. (laughs) Right. Right. Gold doesn't translate in spiritual economies the way it does it in natural economies. They're not really impressed with gold. It's just a piece of metal. It would be like copper dust. Like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. But the demon's like, I can't do nothing with that. Can I get a contract on your soul? Could you please sign it in blood? Because your blood will serve as a metacosmic or as a quantum entangled signature that will go across the space time continuum 
and, and will be actually tied to you here and now and in the future, please sign it in blood. Hmm. And anywhere your blood shows up here in this spectral universe, it will also carry the contractual obligation that you enter into today. Can I get that? <laughs> that, that, that would be dope. Keep the gold. Give me that. It sounds so much more sinister when you explain it that way. Right. But that's really what it is. Uh huh. You know, it's a it's a trade like you were talking about earlier. And it, it really raises two really important questions to me. Number one, how are souls traded? And then two, why are they allowed to be traded? You know, to what ends? To the first question of how they're traded, we got to understand two things, soul fracturing and bloodline contracts or deals. When okay. it comes to soul fracturing, typically we understand this in this community through things like satanic ritual abuse, right? Things that are happening where people are being horribly, horribly uh, tortured and they're being abused on ways that you don't even want to talk about in polite company. Mm -hmm. And of course, those things fracture the soul. Or we'll understand things like human trafficking and when you have a person that's being repeatedly sexually abused and trafficked around the globe, of course, that's taking a toll on their soul and it's creating chips. Well, what happens when a soul is, is traumatized and it's not just by means of sexual or physical abuse, other forms of, of abuse can also traumatize the soul and fracture things like emotional abuse. Things like being constantly put in a state of fear. Things like neglect. These things can create fractures in the soul. And when the soul fractures, the soul is, is apparently very um, malleable or delicate. And when it when it fractures, you, you don't get like the whole soul. You get pieces of it. And these pieces can then be bartered. They can be sold on the market on a cosmic market. And you're like, well, who's, who's going to buy them? It seems uh, apparently where they become extremely valuable is in, in two real areas. One is in clothing because the soul has the ability to be stitched. Like you read this when Jonathan and David had their soul stitched together, right? There's okay. kind of like a, some sort of a fabric as quality to it. So it can be stitched. It can be sewn together. If that can happen, it can be sewn into clothing. And we do know that celestial beings are clothed in garments. Well, according mm -hmm. to people who have had frontline frontline experience with these entities, one of the things that fallen angels and other malevolent beings like to do is to actually create armor out of human souls, particularly soul fragments. They sew them into the armor. They will sew them into their crowns. They'll sew them into their thrones. And the reason for that is it acts as a protective barrier should the kingdom of God or, or uh, a wayward person, you know, somebody decides that they're going to take on a principality or some sort of angel and they start hearkening all sorts of prayers directly to them, normally without a spiritual mandate to back them up. They're doing it in a very foolish, naive way. But as they're launching those arrows, if they're going to hit their target, they will hit the armor first before they hit the fallen angel or the demonic entity, right? Mm -hmm. If they hit that armor first and that armor is comprised of human souls, then that means humanity takes that hit. Furthermore, if the plea is for Jesus to interact 
on that person, you know, to attack that that entity, and that entity is clothed with that those those fragments of, of humanity. Jesus being such a loving and compassionate God is not going to destroy those soul fragments. Why? Because the soul by nature is transdimensional. It's part of the quantum makeup of our being, which means if that fragment was to take the hit, the rest of that person's soul and another place would also take the hit. Interesting. Now, okay. there's a dimensional difference or a distance difference that's also important to understand when it comes to soul trading because like i just said if the person's soul takes a hit with that piece that's embedded in the the fabric or armor of that fallen angel so to speak Mm -hmm. what happens to the soul that's still in their body the larger portion of it it takes a hit too right yeah yeah but what's the thing that i'm pointing out here the fact is that the piece of the soul and the other remaining part can be separated by distance and yet the effect on one is the effect on the other okay now that's huge because that means you can take the soul to other parts of the universe interesting you understand what i'm saying Mm-hmm. that that's big so if you fracture a person's soul through trauma and abuse and then you traffic it to other entities and they traffic it to others that thing may go a lot of different places and have a lot of hmm. different things done to it. And the person here on Earth within our space-time dimension is still feeling the impacts of whatever is occurring. That's nuts. It is. And then we have biblical precedence that backs this up because one of the things that's talked about in the Bible is that when God returns, he will send his angels to the uttermost parts of the heavens to retrieve the souls. This is not just talking about our sky. Right. It's getting those fragments back. Now, souls tend to have another value, which is that they seem to be able to function as a power source for cosmic machinery. Things that are created, technology that is created within the celestial realm. I know this sounds crazy to people listening. You're like, what? (laughs) Angels? Technology? What, What are you talking about? But if we buy into the idea of our dimensional reality is a subset of a much larger dimensional reality, then the then we can accept the fact that the things we have here in our plane of existence are really the mirrored representations of something in a much larger plane of reality. Okay. Now it doesn't become so crazy because that's really the concept that we were presenting when we said economies are not a human creation. Economics are not the creation of the mind of man. There are economies that exist within the spiritual realm. So this is the principle that elucidates that fact that you were pointing out. You seem to have the craziest look on your face right now. (laughs) What is going on? Well, I just... uh, You better not cause me to lose my spot. No, it's it's right on track with what you're saying. But but it's to back you up. Uh, Here in a few weeks, we're going to do our 100th episode, The Matrix. Mm -hmm. And The Matrix gives a very basic Newtonian physics definition on how you can use a human body as a power source. Yeah. If our soul is not bound by this dimension, why could it not be used as a multi-dimensional power source? It's that simple. Exactly. You don't have to understand all the physics of it, but if it works here, it can definitely work there. So sorry, you, you can continue. Exactly. Exactly. You're spot on. So when when you have these things going, soul fracturing, soul trading, all of that stuff, um you have the soul being fractured or not fractured 
uh, but you haven't been transmitted to different parts of the of the universe, different parts of the cosmos. You have things being done to it while it's in possession of malevolent entities. These things are traded like currency. This is the currency of the realm, right? That's okay. one way that they're, they're traded. Then you have bloodline contracts and deals. This is another very important way that access to souls is 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 uh, is garnered. And one of the most common ways that we see this today is through Masonic rites. You know, Freemasons come to a person, hey, listen, we'll give you a business, we'll give you clout in the industry, we'll even give you positions of politics or government if you join our lodge. All you got to do is give us the right to your children or your grandchildren or great grand. Granddad's like, okay. sure. I mean, you're going to help me right now. I mean, economy is tough. No mm-hmm. problem. And that's not the only type of society or type of exchange that, that happens. That happens on a multiple levels of secret societies where there are exchanges being made on the bloodline. And then there are legal contracts that are enacted in the spiritual realm on that bloodline. Actual contracts that do exist, which is crazy when you think about it, because it also means if we look at the spiritual world as a for all intents and purposes a giant courtroom if you will Mm -hmm. then there are legal claims being made to everything and there have to be counterclaims this is why Jesus' blood was so important that blood literally buys legal rights and access that are not granted otherwise there are literal cosmic claims that you can make when you have access to it that you cannot make without it and it supersedes other contractual obligations it's wild because it also helps to to really throw off the idea of well why can't god just wave his finger and magically correct all of his stuff it's not the way this world works Mm -hmm. right if granddad got into a bloodline curse and here you come as as grandson or granddaughter and you're coming to christ and you get saved not all of your woes are dealt with just because you got saved. There are still things that have to be dealt with legally within the spiritual realm to offset those bloodline claims. Interesting. It's also why it's so important that the Holy Spirit seals you. What does he seal? Okay. Seals your soul. This is important because unsealed souls are free game. Interesting. They can be traded. But this type of stuff, once you come under the authority and protection of Jesus Christ, it starts this process of regaining the areas that the enemy has actually taken over. If your soul has been fractured, there are ways to actually get those fragments back to reclaim your humanity, to undo what has been done to to these, these fragments and these parts of you. But then that's only the first question, you know, how are souls traded? Let's get to the second question of, of why are they allowed to be traded? And this ties back to what we had mentioned earlier, man, with pre-Adamic iniquities and bloodline trades. You know, when Adam fell in the garden, it, you know, we put it as fell. And I think that that's a, a linguistic misnomer. It kind of doesn't really create a good understanding of what happened. There was a contractual agreement that was entered into, whether he knew it or not. He changed governments. And as the federated head of the human race, that governmental change carried down to all of the progeny. Right? Mm-hmm. 
this was absolutely huge because it brings up issues of sovereignty, corporation, incorporation, ownership. You know, some of the stuff we've been talking about today. Yeah. And the only way that this stuff could exist is if you do have such things as sovereignty. If you are considered a, a corporal being, right? If you do have some measure of ownership, if these concepts do exist, which they obviously do. They have to exist in a higher dimension than just the natural realm. Mm -hmm. And they do. These are spiritual concepts. And they carry down just like federation is not just a concept of the United States government, you know, the federal government being a federated head of a of a race of people or beings is a concept that transcends the United States government. This is what we found in Adam. So his fall and his shifting governmental allegiance carried down to us and allowed us to be open to spiritual trading. This is part of why Jesus coming on the scene was such good news, because now there was another option available. We weren't just subjected to this whole raw deal that we got. But that's not the only way that bloodline curses their souls are traded. It's not just from what happened with Adam. We see we see this whole federated idea carried out even with the U.S. government. Eisenhower. It's been recorded that Eisenhower actually entered into a trade deal with the alien greys concerning the citizens of the United States. And he had the authority to do that. Why? Because Eisenhower was a CEO of a corporation called the United States. And under its banner were, sub, mm. were, were subsidiaries citizens, if you will, of the United States that he had legal authority over, otherwise known as citizens. And he was able legally to enter into this agreement with the alien grays. Now, part of that agreement was that they would be able to, from time to time, kidnap or, or abduct some of our citizens, but that for the most part, they would leave us alone, that they would also trade technology for access to to, to our citizens and that we could get a technological advantage through their technology that they would give us. We get a, a, not just a technological advantage, but also a military advantage and that we then could become the superpower. We could take over other countries. We'd, we'd have an advantage here on the planet. And of course, there's the assumption that they weren't lying when they agreed to it and that they didn't <laughs> offer the deal to anybody else, which he couldn't be certain of. Mm -hmm. But he entered into to that deal that opened up people who especially are not under the protective blood of Jesus Christ to be free game. You know, that's how this thing works. Now, laying all that as a foundation, <laughs> getting back to the question at hand, so how does this apply to satanic control matrix in these three tiers of, of these three sectors, you know, individual, social, and global? Well, the individual tier, the, the best way to really describe that is you look at that level as almost basic training. The best way to get control over the individuals to run them through a program that everybody's required to go through. And there's nothing better than a compromised educational system. That mm -hmm. system that we're all required to go to is going to start people in the spiritual basic training. They're going to get accustomed to certain ideas, certain ways of thinking, certain modes of thought, certain views on reality. But on top of that, there's going to be things that are left out of our training. 
you know, Christopher, you said when, when it comes to getting trained, there's three things that you got to think about, you know, whether we're getting all the information, you know, are we getting misinformation? Are we getting disinformation? Or are we suffering from a lack of information? And I mm-hmm. think it's clear on these critical, critical subjects that we suffer a severe lack of information. You know, the yeah, education sure. system intentionally does not teach us about finance. Right. We've all wondered, what, why in the hell do I go to school for 12 plus years and don't learn about basic finance? Mm-hmm. You know, why don't you learn about budgeting? Why don't you learn about mortgages? Why aren't we taught about credit? Why aren't we taught about interest? Why are we not taught about compound interest? Why aren't we taught about amortization, fractional reserve lending, subprime lending, derivatives, credit default swaps? Why is that all left off the plate? Well, if you knew that, you'd be more savvy on how you navigate the financial world and you wouldn't come out a debt slave. And Mm -hmm. debt slavery is the name of the game. That's why even when you get through 12 plus years of education, we push you to go into the higher forms of education because it creates debt. Before you get out the gate running, we got yep. you on debt. That's sector one. Sector two, when it comes to social <laughs> reengineering efforts, they're carried out through brainwashing techniques that are fueled through our news, our entertainment, social media, and other technologies that are all seem to be built towards corrupting breaking and trading of souls think about it you can't get to a high place within let's say just the entertainment industry without going through some sort of occult ritual what is that ritual doing it's going to break your soul it's going to fracture it they're going to own you're going to enter into a contract it's going to own parts of you then what are Mm -hmm. they going to do they're going to actually expose the viewer of these things of these people these social influencers they're going to expose them to rituals things that they consider basic programming Most of the people are not going to be aware of what they are watching, what they are taking in, and the prospect that they very well could be participating in an occult ritual. They're also going to push strange things like, I don't know, holidays, anything (laughs) that could get Uh you involved in an occult ritual to somehow get you ritualized and and activated into the occult in order to get a bloodline claim on you that type of stuff is huge and here's the crazy thing all of that stuff is financed by major players like vanguard state street blackrock which are all in turn funded by the banker boys this babylonian money magic system is huge these banker boys belong to as you pointed out before bro a handful of illuminati bloodline families with the chief one being the rothschild dynasty the rothschilds are sabatian Francis Kabbalists that quote unquote claim to be jewish mm-hmm. all right now this brings up this real interesting thing the kabbalah we've heard this a couple times you know what is that is it the red, the red tie that's going around the wrist that uh, that that Taylor Swift, and Madonna, and others are wearing? Aston Kutcher, Demi Moore. Is, I mean, is that what it is? It's just a little fad. I heard it wasn't really sure. Sounds like an offshoot of yoga. Kabbalah is much deeper than yoga. The Kabbalah is really the modern iteration of the ancient Canaanite religions that are filtered through esoteric methods. Now, these methods rely on a mystical interpretation of the Bible and a handful of other principal esoteric writings like the Zohar, which is the Book of Splendor, 
the Sefer Yetzirah, which is the Book of Formation, the Book of Mysteries, the Gate of Reincarnations, and Third Enoch. The, the Kabbalah actually is composed or makes up one of three parts of modern Judaism, which would be the Midrash, the Kabbalah, and the Babylonian Talmud. Now, this Babylonian Talmud part is important because this is how we get the tie-in from finance directly into Babylonian witchcraft. The Talmud is really a collection of Jewish writing commentary on oral on Jewish oral traditions. And what it consists of is some of the most despicable inversions of scripture that you will ever read. Completely disgusting. But it also represented from a biblical perspective, the religion of the Pharisees. This is why Jesus was so upset when he had to deal with the Pharisees. Because this- So this, go ahead. this work existed when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees and stuff, those stories that we see in the Bible. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, because this was enacted when the Jews were put under captivity under Babylon. While they were there, they came up with the Babylonian Talmud. Okay. So once they were gotcha. freed and were able to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and all of that before Christ comes on the scene, this went with them. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. The the Talmud ties directly to Babylon and the these Kabbalists that are running the financial sector, they make up what scripture calls the synagogue of Satan. And that synagogue of Satan actually makes up one of 13 Illuminati power centers under the cult of Satan. And the cult of Satan is the oldest secret society. It's also known as the Brotherhood of the Snake. I'm sorry, not the cult of Satan, the cult of Baal. That's what it's known as. Okay, okay. With the, with the oldest secret society being the Brotherhood of the Snake. And here's the thing about secret societies. You hear that term powdered, you know, put out a, a bit. From what I can understand, you can really categorize them into three categories or three groups, political, collegiate, and religious or esoteric. So for political secret societies, you're looking at things like the Pilgrim Society, the Roundtable Group, the Bilderberg Group, Committee of 300, you know, the Club of, Club of Rome, some of these things we've heard about in the news but don't know much about. Mm -hmm. Then there are collegiate secret societies, things like Skull and Bones or Scroll and Key or the Boulet Society, the Divine Nine, you know, you've got your AKs, your, your, uh, your Deltas, your your Zetas, your Qs, you know, a lot of these Greek letter fraternities or sororities that you see on college campuses. Then your okay. third group of secret societies would be religious or esoteric. These are things like the Golden Dawn, the OTO, the Temple of Set, the Theosophical Society. Here's what's important about these. They represent the political influence that's molding the world order today. And they become the backing force behind entities such as like the World Economic Forum which is actually stated that we will own nothing and love it. In fact, the World Economic Forum, which is pushing the fourth industrial revolution, it requires a, re a reorientation of the financial sector. We have to move in order for that to work. We have to move to a cashless society. Yep. That's it's, what they're telling us. It is. And this is why we're seeing the push, why we're seeing the push for Fed now. It's why we're seeing the push for the digital dollar. It's why we're seeing all of these things happening on a global level. All of this is being manufactured by the Rothschild controlled debt slavery system. And 
coupled with its spiritual counterpart, which is a system of debt encircling the planet, the scope of satanic control really becomes visible. And here's the thing, man, this 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 debt system that encircles the planet, it's not only about controlling natural resources, it's also about redirecting spiritual resources into its own coffers. Like this Rothschild debt slavery system can actually, because of legal contracts that are that are out there, it can take resources that would be coming from heaven and redirect them to its own headquarters. Coincidentally, that headquarters sits in London. You've heard the city of London, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, 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 no, this is not London proper. There is a (laughs) almost a one square mile block of a sovereign state called the city of London. That is actually the Rothschild headquarters. And it functions just like the Vatican. It is its own geopolitical entity. And it sits above the city of London. It sits above uh, Great Britain. It's also known as the crown, which is crazy because if you're following these word things, when you hear about the crown this and the crown that, we would think Britain. We would not Mm -hmm. think Rothschilds. Oh, that's a good point. This stuff is huge. So, is our financial system really a monument to human ingenuity and shrewd fiscal policy? Hell no. There's no way. Mm -mm. Listen, our system is actually the result of a more ancient economic system that traffics, as we said earlier, not in dollars. It traffics in souls. And it's built on this concept of trade. In fact, trade really influences our whole life. Think about some some interesting ways. Think of how we navigate our lives. You know, we, we trade comfort as we hit the snooze button in the morning for the time it takes us to get ready and often costs us peace and gives us anxiety or tension as we rush to get ready for work. That never happens. No, not at all. (laughs) Right? That happened today, getting ready. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to get up. You know, we, we at work, we trade our time for money, which is constantly diminishing in value. So we're not even getting the full return on our time that we used to get. We trade our health for, for the convenience of prepared foods. We trade our minds for entertainment and the altar of the television. These are all deals that we make to meet immediate wants at the cost of future needs. You know, this is where our interactions with trade with Jesus himself differ. We trade at most 100 years of our lives to Jesus for an eternity of blessings. We trade worries and anxiety for peace. That's beyond understanding. We trade our pride for humility and get divine recognition for our transactions. We trade selfishness for service and receive treasure in heaven. We trade promiscuity for chastity and preserve our appetites, our purity, and our health. We trade folly for wisdom and we gain the proper navigational power to live our lives in a in a wholly protected fashion. All of this works on trade. And the scary thing is that Satan is a master of it. And he's so good at it that he's caused us to trade our awareness of a war for the comfort of denying it exists. All this stuff we've talked about right now, there's somebody going, no, it's not as bad as you putting it. Really, we're improving. Our quality of life is getting better. 
We've got technological advancements right around the corner that is making life on this planet more doable. I am concerned about that person. Because <laughs> that's the person that, in my opinion, has their head buried in the sand and cannot properly orient themselves as to where they are at. In fact, they probably think they sitting on a beach in the middle of Kansas. And it's gonna take somebody with a proper spatial attitude to be able to re reorient them to where they are at. In fact, I think I know someone just of such a caliber. I think we need to turn them over to Colonel Miles Cortic, who has something to say. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Three rules. Educate yourself, do not cede any ground to the enemy, and pray like it's all up to God and work like it's all up to us. Gotta nail all three. And rule number one, educate yourself. You gotta know what war doctrine says. This is how you develop that strong mental aptitude. So one of the things that war doctrine, aka scripture, tells us is it actually informs us to diversify our investments. Did you know that? Yeah. That, that came as a shock to me. Ecclesiastes 11.2 says, invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Not what I was so, thinking. Oh, what were you thinking? I was thinking not, not putting all of our eggs in one basket. Is that in scripture? It should be. It's quoted <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, it definitely should be. That's funny. It throws me off this little seven and eight thing because Chuck Missler, he, he helped explain it to me. But it's a typical um, Hebraic like style of writing. Okay. I think we see one of the prophets do it a lot. He's like, there's seven things that detest or that the Lord detests. So I'll give you eight. And I'm like, okay, bro, you're either really bad with numbers <laughs> or <laughs> there's something lost in translation. Right. And like the, the added number is uh, for emphasis. Like if you only had to do five things to irritate God, I'm a list six. Like you went, you went one over. Like that's, that's what's supposed to be conveyed in that. Okay. Okay. But without that being explained, you're like seven and eight. I don't like, know if I can trust this, man. These people can't even count. Right, exactly. But when it says invest your ventures in, you know, in seven things, yes, in eight. It's it's not saying seven or eight. It's saying wherever you can um, diversify, you should do that because you don't know what's going to happen. It's just wisdom to have multiple streams of, whether it's currency or... Uh, commodity or, you know, different things like that. Don't get everything from one source is essentially what it's saying. Exactly. And I thought that was crazy. I'd never heard that, never heard it taught on, never. I was like, but it's right there. That's, yeah, that's, dope. that's pretty dope. Uh, scripture also warns us to not spend all we have, not blindly spend all we have. So Proverbs 21.20 says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. 
Now that's a tough one. Okay. <laughs> that one kind of hurts. Uh, and from from two different perspectives, I think if a person hears that and they like they're living paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. and oh man, I just I spent what I had because I had to pay all my bills. I didn't have enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's one thing, but I don't think that that's particularly the situation that this is referring to. I think okay. it's referring to the person who is a spender, who does not have a component of saving, who 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 literally lives beyond their means. Now we're in a financial system that changes our means of of where where and how we can live. Mm-hmm. You know, we just talked about just a couple of years ago. Groceries were were half what they cost now. Yeah, yeah. Most people's income at their job has not risen to match the manufactured increase on the cost of living. And there is close. Yeah. And there is, (laughs) it is manufactured and there is an impact on the cost of living. It takes time to adjust for that. So if a person is in that process of adjustment, they find themselves paycheck to paycheck scraping the bottom. I don't think this verse is, is pointing to that. I think it's really pointing to the person that does not have a concept of live within your means, save some sort of, of funds, that you're not consuming so that they can be divest, di, uh, invested, diverted and invested in other ventures. Right. Right. So, but the, the warning here would then be, do not be a fool. So I totally get, I'm almost paycheck to paycheck there for a while. I was less than paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. and we can get into that at a different time, but to make sure that you're not a fool if you ever graduate past that paycheck to paycheck, if you are still just spending whatever little extra you have, you fall right back into that full category. Exactly. So we we got to be careful. We may not be there now, but as we progress, let's not end up there. You exactly. know what I mean? Exactly. And then scripture also anticipates the limited nature of our physical existence and suggests, you know, a different economy. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So this is, this is a whole different perspective. Not that we can't have wealth, not that we can't be comfortable, not that we can't have money, but there is something that is going to be infinitely more valuable for the rest of eternity. And that needs to be brought into proper perspective while we consider um, what to do, how we want to navigate our lives. Yeah. I've been struggling with that one lately. Me too. Yeah. It's um, especially in preparing for this episode. Okay. There was a point that was made, um, where the realization was first off realized that scripture talks more about money than it does salvation. Yeah. I was like, huh? Are you sure? I was not a guy to those sections yet. But if that's true, then there's a very, very important position that scripture takes on, on finances that we would be very smart to understand, very wise to to grasp and, and implement. The other thing is the fact that there seems to be a tie between money, affections, and treasure. Yes. Right? There's a relationship between all of those. Mm-hmm. That where I send my money, my treasures are. 
Yes. <laughs> right, now that, that's wild because I'm I'm currently in a financial system that is Luciferian in nature. Mm-hmm. And it requires me to send my money to various places. Right. It encourages me to send it to other places. Uh-huh. We're not talking about OnlyFans. I know there's some people out there that struggle <laughs> with that. We're not, not mentioning that. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, who thinks that if you're if you're sending a few dollars to Chipotle or Chick-fil-A, that you're also putting treasure in those places? Like like Chipotle, for example. They're, they're a good mm-hmm. one. I got a Chipotle close to me. I'll go there when I need to grab something, especially before work. But I don't often think of the fact that even where I'm getting my food, there is a spiritual component to that choice. Yep. You pointed out that right there in Chipotle is actually artwork that commemorates a pagan god. Uh-huh. And I was like, what? No, there's not. And I went and looked. <laughs> And I was, I was still didn't see it. I told you what I saw. And you were like, you, you almost sounded like Rafiki. Look hard. <laughs> right? And then I, I took a picture and sent it to you. You were like, those weird looking things there, those are actually stylized idols to the yep. pagan god. Of, what was it? Quetzalcoatl? Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's crazy. Because on a certain level, I could look at it as... I'm going to the quote unquote temple of Quetzalcoatl to get food and sustenance to be Uh sustained. And I'm willing to trade my heart and treasure for it. Yeah. It's going to screw with me going to Chipotle now. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, um, sorry, go ahead. You can finish your point. But I, I think it's wild then to recognize a, we're making a trade Yes, we're also sending our heart a certain place and we don't realize it. Like maybe the only impact of me sending my heart to Chipotle is that I'm slowly desensitized to the things of God. Okay. Might not take, it might not be immediate that I noticed that. You know, I just had a good burrito. I mean, you go there a few times and a few more times next to you know, you're just not feeling the things of God. And that's only one restaurant. This plays yeah. out in other areas. You know, if I send my money to one restaurant, okay. But then I got to send my money to other companies to provide other other services for me to navigate this world, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trading. And where's that money coming from? It is coming from time I spend at work. And where's that time coming from? It's coming off my life. So I'm literally trading my life for these things. Yep. That's a different way of looking at it. It is. And I, I think um, taxation comes into that too, not to just keep vilifying the government, but if the Bible is savvy enough to tell us that we need to guard our hearts, but also tells us that where our money goes, our heart goes as well. And before we even get to bring it home, large portions of our money is getting sent to this government. You better believe that large portions of your heart are being invested in this pagan nation. Right. And we don't even have... Especially if you're not aware of it, which then means it's so important, so important to follow rule number two, which is not ceding any ground to your enemy. Right. But that's so challenging because a lot of stuff we just don't see. We don't recognize. How do you engage an enemy that you can't see and you're not sure you're not certain is there? The only way you can do that 
is by relying on the revealing power that the word of God offers so that the enemy is highlighted. This ends when we decide to take the Bible seriously, believe what it says, and actually do what it says that we really can do, which is to take charge of what the enemy is throwing at us. How do you do that? By exposing what he is doing, opposing his forces, and actually tearing down his works. But if you're going to do that, you got to master rule three, which is praying like it's all up to God and working like it's all up to you. Christopher, what are some things that people could be praying for? Well, first, I think that people should pray for understanding on how all this system works. Like, because we explained it, but I mean, there's a lot to it. There's a lot more that we didn't even get into. I'm still confused. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot to master. Right. And not just how it works, but how this system has effectively put the individuals in bondage because it's not going to be the same for every person. It's a multifaceted and complex system. So it's going to have varying degrees of bondage and it's going to look different for each person. And exactly. only the Holy spirit can, can reveal that to you. Dude, I think that's really important because you were talking a moment ago about uh, Brandon. I can't remember his last name. Uh, Brandon, Joe Williams. Yes. And there are people who are going to hear the stuff we're talking about and they're going to go, what, what do we do? You know, like, mm -hmm. like do I, do I renounce my citizenship? Do I get out of the birth certificate thing? You know, there, do I join the sovereignty movement? What do I do? And I think you hit the nail square on the head. You have to pray and get your marching orders from the Holy Spirit. Because for some people, he's going to actually probably tell, you need to do this. You, know, mm -hmm. you need to take these steps and actually begin to, to dissolve yourself out of this system. For others, he may say, read this book. So all you need to do, read this book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get you, increase your understanding and your awareness and we'll move to the next phase. For others, work some more hours. We need to yeah. get you yeah, out, of, out of debt. We need to cut back on the Chipotle. Whatever it is, he's going to direct you personally. That's really yep. where you start. I love that you said that and that you said it first. Thanks. Thanks. Yes. Because yeah, like even if you hate the system or whatever, if God's not called you to work hard against this luciferian system then you're going to wear yourself out you know and maybe even do more harm to yourself by fighting you know picking fights that god hasn't chosen for you exactly uh another thing that we should pray for is i think we should pray for forgiveness for the areas of our lives that we have um 
where we've desired things more than we have Jesus. Okay. When we've the um You know, because you, you mentioned uh, earlier about the love of money being the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to to stand on the outside of that and be like, well, I've never loved money. But again, it's a multifaceted system. So it might not have been money. You know, it might have been this thing. It might have been comfort. It might have been these things that money affords. You know, a lot of times those things sneak in and aren't uh, that easy to recognize until they take over. Oh, exactly, man. There, there was a lady who was talking about how she was woken up one day by what sounded like a jackhammer of construction work going on around her. There was nothing on going on physically, but she could hear this. And this was actually stuff that was going on in the spiritual realm around her. And she had to ask the Holy Spirit, what does all this mean? He said, there's a whole deconstruction process that's happening right now on your life. There were things are being torn down. And she was like, Why? Because you're trading. You're trading the comfort of being able to achieve the dreams that other people are going to look at like, ooh, that's amazing. You're trading it for what I've called you to do. And I was like, yo, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, you're trading the comfort and security of the nine to five instead of stepping out and doing something amazing. One of our, 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 our longtime friends of the show, Dominic, is is getting ready to make some major changes to to yeah, his life, he is. right? And it's required changing jobs. I'm only saying this now because he's already made it public, you know. But he's he's changing jobs and he's going into a totally different area. You know, he's he's leaving a major employer and deciding to actually go work with underprivileged kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. I'm I'm blown away on two different levels. Number one, I'm so thankful it's you, Dominic, and not me. <laughs> I really encourage you in this endeavor. Yeah. Right? But on the other end, I'm blown away because he's making a trade. He's making a huge spiritual trade. He's trading the convenience and comfort of knowing what he would be getting at his former employer for something that he's not certain of when it comes to this new venture, but strongly believes that it is where the Lord is telling him to go and he's willing to do it. Not everybody is willing to do that. Some of us will just make the trade of nope. I do not want to be on that level of uncertainty. I am cool right now with the nine to five. And that has a very tangible, real cost to us and to our progeny and to our future. Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. We got to be willing to recognize, repent of that and ask for forgiveness and course correct. Yes, yes. You know, not just to, Got hey, I'm to sorry, do that, but actually make uh, th- the change. Yes, and and that takes us to the to the work section. And one of the first things that I think we can do for work is to take finances seriously. Be intentional about what you're doing and what you have. Easy things like um, have a budget, right? Yeah. Map out your spending. You know, if you are paycheck to paycheck, you can manage, you can still manage your money and not have your money manage you. And there, there's this thing that I heard and it, I'm always making steps to be this intentional with my money. But I can't remember if it was, it was a story of a guy who was doing fairly well financially, but he had come from uh, not having a lot of wealth. And one of the things they said, anybody was... Uh, 
anybody could talk to him at any point in time and ask him how much money he had spent on a certain thing. Like how much money did your family spend on groceries or how much did you spend on eating out or whatever? And he always knew down to the dime, this is where my money's going. And not, not saying that that's going to build wealth or whatever, but I was like, man, if I could have that type of control, that doesn't require you to change your spending at all. You could still do paycheck to paycheck. You could still eat as many lemon pies and bonbons as you want, but to be so intentional about your funding that you know how much to the dime, to the cent, if you want, right. of your money is going to each place, that alone is, is going to, it's going to give you perspective. It's going to help. I mean, you can't not manage your money when you know how much is going in each direction. You know what I mean? Oh, that's a wild idea, man. It really reminds me of something I heard on Instagram this week where a gentleman said, you know, he was talking to a mentor and asked him, I guess, you know, what should I be doing? And he said, you need to start working to become a millionaire. And the guy was like, really? He said, yeah, once you become a millionaire, you can give the money away. What the hell would I do that? (laughs) He said, because you should become a millionaire not to make the money but because of the person it will require you to be in order to achieve it. I like that. That was a wild idea Mm -hmm. because that's not again taught in our culture when it comes to finance. Right. If you're going to become a millionaire, it's for that million. Exactly. So that you can make it rain, pop bottles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't do what they do in them videos that do not program us by the way. Those just no, 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 not at all. No, no, no. Those are those <laughs> like public service announcements. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it was a crazy idea. I never thought about the character necessary. You're gonna mm-hmm. have to commit yourself to diligence. You're gonna have to be, uh, you know, disciplined. You're going to yeah. have to continue it. You're gonna have to have consistency. You're gonna develop these character traits within your person, your personhood, that are going to change and mold who you are as a human being. Yeah. And it's so cool to realize that you can start adopting those without having to have any influx of income. Exactly. Right now, you can start doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Just being intentional and uh, aware of where your money's going. It is a swift kick in the balls. Sorry, I don't know what it feels like for ladies. But when you get... <laughs> they don't know. They don't... Oh, I thought you were going to say they still don't have souls. And I was like, yeah, well, wow. It was, a, it was a equally <laughs> derogatory statement. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm trying anyway, to Anyway, continue. You from, Help me out. What were you saying, Jason? Listeners that are going Our to wonderful female listeners. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it really hurts when you get to see really where your money has gone and how much. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a purchase here, thing there. Yeah, it's not that much. I can, you know, we can handle it. Then you look at it. I remember one year, probably about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I happened to look at how much I spent on Chipotle in that uh-huh. year. And I was like, I could have bought a MacBook for the amount of, there's no burrito here worth a MacBook worth of payment. Mm-hmm. Like it was so bad. They knew me. <laughs> Squares, yeah. what's up, baby? You want the, you want the extra rice? Yes. Into this? Yes. <laughs> you also don't have to give your order. That's funny. You know, it, 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 it's really sobering when you find out where your money's going. But it's mm-hmm. important because you have to maintain an awareness of your domain, of your own internal government. Yep. Yep. And there's apps that can help with that. I have an app that allows me to um, 
Uh, I think it's just called money.com or something like that. Okay. Uh, but uh, it allows me to pick different categories of spending. So eating out, like it wouldn't have to be Chipotle and McDonald's or, you know, whatever. Just eating out as a category. Okay. You know, and you put each thing in a category and then it lets you go back and look month by month how much was spent in each particular category. Gotcha. That's been eye-opening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My bank offers a very similar service. Okay. And I, and I really hate it. <laughs> I don't I don't even really know that. Well, I was just throwing it out for people that might not have, you know, a bank that does that or an app. You no, know, I'm glad you, you did. You can, okay. Yeah. Okay. I was just saying I struggle with the same, with, with something similar. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's. Um, what do I want to say? Philosophically or uh, on a principle level, I'm offended at myself for being awestruck at knowing where my money goes. There's a part of me that's like, <laughs> you should have known that. Yeah. How so did why you get you surprised <laughs> so far down this hole that just knowing where you've spent money is somehow upsetting you? I'm like, well, now I'm upset for two different reasons. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. That's funny. Uh, some other stuff that you can do for work, though, is I would highly recommend, and full disclosure, I have not finished the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, by uh, what I say his name was Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, yes, yes. Even if you don't adopt his principles, right, because we talked about how it's utilizing the Luciferian system. Mm-hmm. He does an exquisite job at breaking down how it works and really um, the way the book is laid out, breaking you of the uh, the conditioning that has led you to believe this is what I do for money. You know, this is these are the steps to acquiring wealth. He really does a great job at breaking that down and explaining how, you know, some people that are successful navigate it. Like well, one of the principal things, and it's just it's been like a, a splinter in my mind. He says that wealthy people buy assets. Assets, not liabilities. Poor, yeah, poor people buy liabilities. Yeah. And that he said that that makes all the difference. When you want, once you understand assets and liabilities, that's what separates poor people people from wealthy people. And I'm like Yeah, I, I wanted to kick him. Yeah. How come it's that simple? And it really is. In in the actual workings on how you go about um, navigating those things successfully is is vastly more complicated, but the principle of it is flawless. Yeah, and it's simple. So yeah, it, it to to get a different financial perspective, definitely recommend Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, if you're in debt, I would highly recommend uh, Dave Ramsey's financial financial piece. Okay. He he has done a, a lot of good work in helping people get out of debt that way. If um, neither one of those are really uh, spiritually deep enough for you, Dan Duvall has got some great material uh, on how the financial system works and a much more complex and divine perspective. Really, really good stuff. I second that. But maybe that's not enough for the person. Maybe they're like, Bring it on. I need more. That was good, but it's just not cutting it. Cool. I get it. We got one more thing that you could probably put on your shoulders to do. And that is share the show, baby. We's <laughs> in 2024. We're trying to grow it mo. I think that might be the slogan for the rest of this year. That's, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to grow it mo in 2024. 
That oh, almost sounds great. like a shirt that I can only wear for 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> but no, man, dude, people have did an absolutely phenomenal job sharing the show. Yeah. Last year we broke numbers that we have never seen. And yeah, it was I'm incredible. So thankful for everyone that actually forwarded, whether it was by text, direct link, and you shared it on Instagram, Facebook. Don't matter how you got it out, emailing it to you folks. Thank you. Totally, mm-hmm. totally appreciate it. Not just for the growth, but it's really good to see the work being shared and and the the effort being sewn into other people's life so that other people can get free. So the other people can have their minds changed, their, their thinking rearranged, and the lights can come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man, could not do this without you all. So thank you for doing that. Yes, thank you. And if you want more Operation Red Pill, consider joining our Patreon. We're still plugging away at it. Uh, you can find us at our home site at orppodcast.com. But the three tiers of our Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash orppodcast. So we got three tiers. You can get it on the ground level, cover fire, five bucks a month. For our tier one, you get all the links and resources we use to make an episode, as well as access to full-length versions of our episodes. So anything that we've done, either partial or completely on Patreon, any of the audio that we record for consumption will be available at that $5 a month tier. Uh, The second level is Overwatch tier two operators. Seven bucks a month gets you everything in tier one, as well as the actual studio notes that we use while running the episode. So a lot of times, especially like this one was a pretty long episode, we'll jump around a little bit. Some stuff won't get covered. So there's always some nuggets. Sometimes there's some jokes. Um, Occasionally, very rarely, there might be a mistake in there somewhere that you could chastise us for. But... (laughs) Uh, th- that's a lot of fun if you if you're into like the behind the scenes uh, type stuff, and then top level bring the rain tier three operator ten bucks a month. You get everything from tiers one and two, as well as the opportunity to participate with Jason and I on a Zoom call with all the other ten dollar patrons, and this is a fantastic time. We uh, were able to cover current events. Uh, we did a little do a little Q and A. You know, yeah, give yeah, yeah. give some of the patrons an opportunity to um, help cultivate the show a little bit. Things they like, things they don't like, um, different things, uh, subject matter they want us to cover. Uh, always a fantastic time Absolutely. Uh, to do that and Zoom we've call. Got our next Zoom call is going to be coming up on the 28th of this month. So people you have still it. got a chance to go on ahead and become a part of it. Get in on the call. We need yep. the participation. We love it. Man, people come with so many different perspectives and questions and the interaction, man. It's it's infectious. I love it. It is. Like I, I found myself looking forward to it every month. Like, when is it? When is it again? Oh, I gotta wait <laughs> 30 more days. I need my next yep. hit. I do the same thing. It's it's such a blast. So thank you for that. For anyone that's already on there, thank you for all of our patrons that have have donated and helped make this thing possible. Yes. Allows us to keep plugging away at it and and provide the quality of show that you've come to expect. But here's the last thing that you can do. Remind yourself of what scripture tells us, which is that we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. And we have a community of believers all over the world and a loving God who actually intervenes on our behalf. Because one day we won't be dependent on debt to make ends meet. One day, our economy will be based in truth and not deceit. 
And one day we will no longer be sustained by money, but, we, but by the presence and power of God himself. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission here, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But you know what? We still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone who can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment. But the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me. You take fire, we expect you to give fire. Now we need you to keep your hair on a swivel out there. You stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you. And we'll see you out there again, fighting on the front line. 10-4.